Season 4, Episode 3, AFO Summer. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the January 6, 2021 attack on our nation's capital. I'm Scott Kuhn. With so many Trump cases ongoing, I've been a little remiss in catching up with some of the other defendants, i.e. the Capitol attackers on the ground. But we're now in a phase of breathless reporting regarding the various motions being filed in various cases as we move forward forward to trial dates. I will summarize them uh, like this. Mostly, these are motions being filed by the defense that have little chance of success. And the media is not really going to report on that part of the question about how often it is when a movement seeks to have, for example, a case transferred from state court to a federal court, how often is that successful? Now, the way federalism works in our system, this really only works if the state government has no objections. Yes, the supremacy clause is a thing, but as a practical matter, if a state court wants to prosecute a crime, it's not going to get bumped into federal court, particularly if the Department of Justice isn't there to claim that the case should be moved. Such motions are rarely successful, as are many of the other motions that have been uh, moved by the various movements on the defense side. Now, we've seen a lot of attention, for example, to the motion by Mark Meadows to remove his case in Fulton County to federal court, and a lot of attention to the fact that the legal standard involves the word colorable, right? Is there a... is it colorable as part of his job duties? Now, there's been a certain amount of journalistic malpractice with regard to this question. The fact is, such motions are rarely successful, and yet this basic fact wasn't reported. And I expect that trend is going to continue. There's going to be reporting on these motions. Again, you know, they're usually not successful. So what we're going to see until the trial date in October for Cheesebro and Powell is another series of motions from the defense in the documents case and the January 6th case. This is going to keep the press well occupied, but it's going to have very little effect other than that. So when, for example, Donald Trump asks for Judge Chutkin to recuse herself, that's just not a thing that's going to happen. Again, such motions rarely succeed. And that motion was basically just an ad hominem attack on the judge. That's not going to work. It doesn't help Trump's case at all. Moreover, I expect that this was done directly at Trump's insistence. No rational attorney would file this kind of motion personally attacking the judge for statements that she made in cases that involve the violent mob who went to D.C. to do Trump's bidding. So, if anyone needs a competency evaluation, it's Donald Trump, because he seems hell-bent on sabotaging his own legal defense. So, as we do move forward, we would... uh, do well to remember that the government has won over 99% of all January 6th cases. Whatever motions Trump and other defendants make, you know, I like those odds. This is also consistent with the government's overall success rate. In other cases, the DOJ tends to not bring cases that they are not likely to win. Now, there are a couple of other court developments I would like to mention before I get to the main theme of this particular episode. Um, the first is that Ray Epps, the tall, elderly Arizona rancher, one-time president of the Oath Keepers' largest state chapter uh, in Arizona, 
Uh, also the subject of a myriad of January 6th conspiracy theories, Ray Epps has been charged and pleaded guilty to one count of disorderly or disruptive conduct in a restricted building or grounds, violation of 18 U.S. Code Section 1752A2. Now, with this charge, all the conspiracy theorists who have ever asserted without evidence that Epps alone was responsible for the January 6th attack were utterly silenced forever. Far-right conspiracy theorists just collectively shrugged and said, Oh, I guess he's not a Fed. Of course, that's not what happened, right? That's not the case. Immediately, sedition apologists went into meltdown mode, claiming that this one misdemeanor charge isn't enough. And the fact that he was only charged with one misdemeanor proves that Ray Epps is a Fed. Similar to how they argued that the fact that he wasn't charged at all was proof that he was definitely a Fed. So, you know, no matter what, they're going to think Ray Epps is a Fed. Now, it does answer one question, right? Which is why Epps' picture was removed from the Bolo page, which is that Epps had turned himself in immediately and told on himself. He fessed up. No need to be on the lookout for someone who has turned themselves in and fessed up. Now, he actually did this, you know, so quickly, and it makes him a bit unusual, which is why this hasn't happened very much. The Bolo information went up, and Epps basically calls in on January 8th. And then he spoke on the phone regarding his activities during that interview. And again, there's a follow-up interview on March 8th of 2021. So, if you look at his statement of facts, it basically outlines that timeline. Relatively short, 12-page document goes through what happened. Um, and also the identification, which is really straightforward in his case. Uh, there is one thing that I, I would like to point to. Quote, he stated that when word started to spread that rally-goers were going to the Capitol after the speeches concluded, he decided to help spread the message and that he wanted to be in the front of the pack. End quote. Now, there's a glaring problem here, right? So they put the time where Epps decides to go start telling people, go into the Capitol, um, which, again, he would tell anyone this, they put that after the speech. That's a problem, right? So somehow there's, you know, he's telling the, the, the feds, oh, well, word just got out after the speech that we're supposed to go to the Capitol and go into the Capitol. Of course, many listeners and many people who've been paying attention will realize the problem with this is that there's video evidence to the contrary. Again, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is just a, a minor factual error in the document or Epps self-reporting something that's simply not true, which is interesting in, in this context. I don't know why they would rely on Epps' statements because it is easily demonstrated that, that this is simply not true. The whole reason the entire Epps is a Fed narrative actually got started is because there was a video from January 5th from um, Anthemigione, a baked Alaska, um, in which Epps exhorts people to go inside the Capitol on January 6th, and other people who know what the actual plan is, right, they know, okay, yeah, we're going to go into the Capitol on January 6th, but they're not saying this. And I call it the milkshake rule, 
right? Because there's other video of the Proud Boys all assembled in the march to the Capitol, and Milkshake said, one of, one of the Proud Boys says, we're going to go inside, the, we're going to storm the Capitol! And uh, I think it's Nordine who says, fucking Milkshake, right? I mean, they're not, they all know they're not supposed to say this. Epps, again, he's acting alone. He's some guy from the internet. He's not in touch with his Oath Keeper buddies after he's dropped out of the Oath Keepers, but he's a motivated Trumpist, and he thinks that everyone needs to know they need to go inside the Capitol. So that's what he's doing. But he's doing it on January 5th. There's video of him doing it on camera on January 5th. Not a big deal. I would suppose, I mean, you know, he's pleaded out. That's fine. Um, but I guess, it, you know, that is the, the fact here. It's it's just it's it's a little crazy making because there's so much uh, insane narrative around Epps that one would hope they would really want to get all the facts right, and you know, I know they don't listen to my podcast, so it's not going to feed into any of that. Um, but that's the whole reason that Epps Big Mega Camo right that was his hashtag has another hashtag hashtag Fed Boomer right because the members of the crowd on January fifth all said. Fed, 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 fed. All right, well, I could probably do a whole episode on Epps. Uh, this has already gone on long enough. He's really not that important, despite the fact that he's everywhere on January 6th. Um, he goes all over the place on Capitol grounds, and uh, because he's such a tall fellow, uh, he shows up, you know, uh, it's easy to spot him. Nonetheless, the great irony of his case is that, you know, despite the fact that so many sedition apologists have tried to make him the person who's solely responsible for January 6th, it was the online open source intelligence community who made this charge possible. People were intensely interested in Epps. They were looking for him to do things. And they weren't able to actually found very much, find very much, but it was Sedition Hunters who actually found the video of Epps appearing to assist and direct the sign attack on officers. For folks who are not familiar with this particular incident, there's one moment where there's a huge metal frame Trump sign, and the, the mob is hoisting it, and it's very heavy. It takes probably 20 people, 15, 20 people to lift the thing. And they're hoisting it above their heads, and they're moving it toward the line of officers. And at one point, Epps appears to lay one of his hands on this sign and give it a little bit of a, a push. Not you know, not very long, not concerted. He does urge the other people in the crowd to keep up with it. And this is why I believe, they don't spell this out, but this is the entire basis of this disorderly or disruptive conduct charge. Now, the government's decided not to charge people who committed incitement, which Epps also, of course, did do. That's the main offense, potentially, he could have been charged with. Just as they decided not to charge people who were merely on restrictive grounds who didn't commit other offenses. So absent all the conspiracy theories regarding Epps, I don't think he would have been charged at all if not for the fact that the tinfoil hat people have made such a hue and cry about the need to charge Epps and the claims that he's a Fed. Now, again, Epps' involvement in moving the sign was very brief and he didn't really appear to substantially contribute, um, but that's what they got him on. So the charging of Epps is something of a milestone, if only because all these sedition apologists and kooks have given Epps such a prominence. 
But if you look, he's there, he's alone, he's talking to everybody, but he's not really with everybody. And more importantly, if he was hooked up or connected with other people, it would have shown up in uh, the discovery materials for other defendants. He's not. He's just some guy, effectively, far-right activist, goes from Arizona to D.C. on January 5th and 6th. So, um, and of course, it doesn't change the status quo. Yeah, they've charged him, but that's not going to dissuade people who have already convinced themselves that Ray Epps was a Fed and did everything pretty much on his own and was the main instigator of January 6th. Donald Trump, right? It was Donald Trump, not Ray Epps, but okay. So I do want to thank all the people who spent hours of their lives uh, watching videos looking to find what Big MAGA camo actually did on January 6th. Um, you know, if I personally thought Ray Epps would matter, really, I'd be howling at the fact that he gets to plead to the, the single 1752 charge. Um, but a lot of people spent a lot of time looking, and they found nothing worse than the sign incident. I don't think there is anything worse than the sign incident, unless if they're going to, you know, charge people with incitement, right? But if they're going to do that, the inciter-in-chief is Donald Trump. Um, and by the way, there's there's really good reasons to not want the government to have this power to charge people with incitement. There's a reason they don't charge it. They don't always win these cases. There are legitimate First Amendment issues. So they're not charging people with incitement, even though that was, in fact, the main thing that Ray Epps did. So they got him on this. But I think for people who are concerned about civil liberties, there are good reasons legitimate, valid reasons to not want the government to charge, you know, to be charging people with incitement in January 6th or anywhere else. All right. Now, another development that I really think is uh, potentially important, Molly Michaels, uh, Trump's, sorry, Mar Molly Michael, Trump's assistant in the White House, uh, has apparently been dishing regarding um, these stolen document stuff. And maybe, who knows, January 6th as well. Now, listeners have, will be aware that I have a, a theory regarding the witnesses represented by Dan Benson before the January 6th committee. These witnesses, including Michael, Eric Hirschman, uh, Kushner, Alex Cannon, Ivanka Trump, um, they're, they're a group that I see as a, a block. And the purpose of this block, according to Cassidy Hutchinson, was to protect Eric Hirschman. As I mentioned uh, in the section on Eric Hirschman, uh, his transcript, you know, what what was Eric Hirschman doing? Why is Eric Hirschman in the White House at all? He's a senior advisor. He's basically a, a minister without portfolio. And according to Hirschman's own description of his activities, the main thing that he appeared to do while he was in the White House was to act as a kind of joint chief of staff or another chief of staff. Um, he was controlling the inbox. There was this process that he describes and Michael describes whereby Michael is the one who's, send, who's in charge of Trump's inbox. She's sending stuff to Hirschman to review to see, hey, he got this. Should we show it to him? Hirschman, uh, according to him, is saying no to a lot of stuff from Team Crazy. And again, I don't know how much of this is true, right? This is based on Hirschman's testimony. Hirschman, I expect, is pretty self-serving, and that's the thing here. Just because, 
you know, someone's offering testimony that might be harmful to Trump doesn't necessarily make them a good guy, right? He has legal exposure in other areas. Um, there are possible financial charges relating to elections, LLC. Um, he may have been involved in January 6th in various ways. So point of the matter is, we don't necessarily know. He claims that he was, um, you know, a, a, a voice of reason. Uh, he claimed that he was there telling folks, hey, look, you, you got to get out in front of this. Donald Trump, you need to uh, say something, telling people to go home. There's an issue where Hirschman uh, claims that they, there's this handwritten note that uh, Cassidy Hutchinson identifies as being in her handwriting, and Hirschman has said, no, that was that was my handwriting. Um, it's an odd insistence on his part, where he's clearly trying to, to make himself look like a voice of reason. In any event, whatever Eric Hirschman and Jared and Ivanka's function or purpose in, in paying for, um, basically, Eric Hirschman's old law firm and his uh, law partner, uh, Dan Benson, to represent these folks, it's now, it's, it's ongoing, right? So, basically, if it's a choice between Hirschman or Kushner and Ivanka, and Trump, they're going to flip. Which, again, doesn't make them the good guys, right? But this set of potential defendants uh, do, in fact, know a lot. And they could potentially offer a lot of evidence against Trump on a lot of things, as Molly Michael appears to have done. So, Michael is a witness in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Uh, after... After January 6th and all the terrible stuff that happened, she stays with Donald Trump. She continues to work for him in a similar capacity, a similar administrative capacity down in Florida. Now, this article, which I will link to in the show notes, is um, it cites, quote, sources. We don't know who these sources are. Now, of course, uh, sedition apologists will say, see, it's Jack Smith. He's leaking like a sleeve. No, uh-uh. Probably someone in the Hirschman, Molly Michael, Dan Benson camp, right? Could be Jared and Ivanka for all we know, but it's, quote, sources. But these sources, definitely not anyone in the government, because as we've seen, they have been running a very leak-proof ship. So, according to the reporting, Trump used, quote, requests or taskings from Trump that were written on the back of note cards, and she later recognized those note cards as sensitive White House materials, with visible classification markings used to brief Trump while he was still in office about phone calls with foreign leaders or other international-related matters. End quote. So after the search, Molly Michael found more of these note cards with classified markings and turned them over to the FBI, again, at her place of work uh, in Mar-a-Lago. Other allegations included in this reporting, quote, she grew increasingly concerned with how Trump handled recurring requests from the National Archives. Again, she was working with Walt Nauta uh, with regard to all the, the moving of the boxes and that stuff. Quote, sources also said that after Trump heard the FBI wanted to interview Michael last year, Trump allegedly told Michael, quote, you don't know anything about the boxes, end quote. So here we have Molly Michael, who eventually did leave Trump's employment, uh, who was there on January 6th, although 
That's an interesting story, too. She wasn't physically present for most of the day on January 6th. A bit of an unusual circumstance. Reminds me of Enrique Tarrio. You know, did she remove herself on purpose? Um, in any event, she is offering testimony that basically says Donald Trump is guilty of obstruction of justice. So that's highly significant. Now, a fair number of people now are comparing Molly Michael to Cassidy Hutchinson, which blows my mind. That's completely wrong. Michael was in no way bothered by January 6th. She continued to work for Trump after January 6th, moving to Florida, working at Mar-a-Lago until last year. And presumably at some point, I guess out of the heat got too hot, maybe, I, I was it a conscience finally at long last? She decides to go. So, um, no one seems to be asking where this information is coming from, but, you know, uh, it's not Jack Smith. Uh, Jack Smith's been leak-proof. Could be from someone in the Hirschman Kushner camp. Um, if Michael's doing it, she's doing it at someone else's direction. And Hirschman is the actual head of these legal efforts, again, along with his uh, law partner, Dan Benson. So, what's my take on all this? Well, great, right? If Molly Michael is hanging Trump out to great dry, that's awesome. But, you know, does it bother me if... Kushner, Ivanka, Cannon, Hirschman, and Michael uh, all stay out of jail. You know what? If they offer evidence that supports serious allegations that wind up uh, landing Donald Trump in jail, I, I guess probably not. But we should not confuse that with them being heroes. They are not Cassidy Hutchinson. Molly Michael's not Cassidy Hutchinson. So just stop it with these comparisons because they're just kind of gross and inappropriate. Now back to these absurd motions um, that Trump has been filing and his ever increasingly off-the-wall rantings on his uh, social media platform. Now in general, to, what this reminds me of, he's given off the same kind of vibes that Hitler did uh, in his bunker. Uh, Godwin's law at this point is just straight out the window. Uh, instead, at this point, we should adopt a, a you know, different set of criteria, right? We have a circumstance wherein Trump's behavior is predicted by Trump, by Hitler's behavior at this point. If you want to understand Trump, look at what Hitler was doing at the same corresponding period in his downfall. One of the things that happened as uh, the Red Army uh, got closer and closer to Berlin is that Hitler's pronouncements and all the pronouncements of official Nazi propaganda became ever more and more fantastic and hysterical. And we're seeing that with Trump today. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm just going to put this out as a general observation. We're going to see Trump's flailing become ever more hysterical. Trump commands his inner circle by bullying. Anyone that he cannot cow, he simply fires. That's why it's possible to respect someone like, like Scaramucci, right? I mean, once Trump discovers someone can't be cowed, he simply gets rid of him. It's actually a point of honor, the fact that Scaramucci lasted as short as he did. The people who are, um, you know, we should reserve ridicule for are the ones who managed to stay there. You know, the, the Mnuchins of the world uh, who are just, you know, kind of sitting around and continuing to do Trump's bidding no matter what. Only toadies and sycophants were able to last uh, very long in his, service, his service. So all the people who were inclined to say no to Trump, 
Um, they're long since gone. They are not in his organization. Uh, he has rejected his reality, and the world, our reality, and substituted his own. And that's why we, what we now see, and will increasingly see, ever more absurd and nonsensical motions from Trump's legal team. He's going to travel on ground now well-trodden by other January 6th defendants. He's going to insult the D.C. jury pool. He's going to insult the Fulton County jury pool. He's going to insult the judges. He's going to insult the prosecutors. Anyone who would serve to uh, you know, try to hold him to account, uh, with the possible exception of Judge Cannon down in Florida, he's just going to continue to rage against now again, for people familiar with history, this is nothing new. Um, I mean, if you look at late war Nazi propaganda, uh, you get the sense of how completely unrelated to reality their propaganda became as the Red Army drew closer and closer to Berlin. So I actually I put an example of this in the show notes from uh, the Saxon Propaganda Ministry, or the Propaganda Ministry of Saxony, uh, 27 March 1945. Um, at that time, uh, the Fuhrer had just returned, for example, from a trip to the Eastern Front. And uh, they said things like, quote, troops must defend their section until the time for our offensive armies to attack has come. That time must end, must and will come. The German people uh, that over its history has already withstood so many swarms, will also master the Bolshevik attack from the eastern steppes. So that's what Hitler said, you know, when he was visiting the troops during his last visit to the front lines in 1945. And during the propaganda, of course, they, they put this up on the Deutsche Wolkenschau film, and all those people that he's talking to there they all wind up dead or captured by the Red Army within weeks after he goes back to Berlin. Everything, you know, got, is, you know, again, just like with Trump, through this distorted lens. And so here's another a quick excerpt from the Saxon Propaganda Ministry. Quote, in evaluating the situation on the Western Front, one must not ignore the fact that the enemy's supply problems are increasing. Our increased U-boat campaign is contributing to that. Each day, the great battle of attrition in Western Germany devours one to two whole Anglo-American divisions. In February alone, the Anglo-Americans lost 2,000 tanks on the Western Front. Captured enemy soldiers say there are hardly any veterans of the first two months of the invasion left. End quote. All right. So, again, the fact that the enemy has invaded your homeland to such an extent that their supply lines are getting long isn't really a great prognosis for you, right? And, you know, there's no point of comparison with what was, in fact, already, you know, happening in Germany, right? The Allies had total air superiority, and the Western Allies were in the Ruhr district. So, yeah, were Allies enduring significant losses? Absolutely. But the one study put German losses in March of 1945 as 284,442. That's the third highest month after January 1945 when the Germans lost 451,742. So again, I mean, that's the kind of the distorted mirror that you see um, as these fascists wind up facing they are their inevitable defeat. Um, 
You know, it's like, yeah, no, actually, you're. It's really bad that your enemy supply lines are getting long. If the reason is they're stretching so far into your homeland, that's actually bad. You're, you're what you're saying there doesn't make sense. You know, and they go on. I mean, they talk about the the last uh, V two bomb uh, that landed in Ant Antwerp, right? And that you know, again, that was the very last one they had. All the and why is it in Antwerp? Well, all the sites that could actually hit Britain had been overrun by by the Allies. So you know, just just again, kind of nonsense that we're going to see coming out of Trump. To my mind, reminds me of late war Nazi propaganda. They would talk about. How, you know, the Americans are cutting back on butter, and they're limited to 15 pounds of butter a year now. And I guarantee you, Germans in 1945, spring of 1945, 15 pounds of butter, they can get 15 grams of butter, right? So absolutely ridiculous. So we're just going to see blatant falsehoods, lies, uh, things that are completely unrelated to the truth, such as the uh, motion to recuse, for Judge Chutkin, which, again, you know, Chutkin was making the same kind of statements other judges in D.C. District Court have made about various defendants with regard to, um, you know, the reason why they were doing what they did. And many of the times they were actually making these points, they were actually responding to motions that had been uh, put forward or explanations that were put forward by the defendants in question. So these were usually prompted by something that actually happened in court. So, and they're, you know, making all kinds of, like, ridiculous accusations, like, well, Chutkin has no basis to make these statements. Chutkin had heard, you know, dozens and dozens of cases, um, had had all these defendants, all, all the evidence, you know, had certainly watched a lot of the video. So, now, um, again, just unmoored from facts and reality. And ultimately insulting people that you don't necessarily want to insult. You don't necessarily want to insult the prosecutors, the judges, the jury pool when you are facing felony charges in any given district. So anyway, at this point, it's a good time to do a little catching up on uh, what had happened over the summer, which I'm calling AFO Summer. Why? Because so many significant AFO defendants have been arrested over the course of the last three months. Now, listeners will know that I've had a long-running segment where I go through the numbers. Um, I look at what, you know, arrests, convictions, etc., and so forth. From the beginning, I've used Sedition Tracker at seditiontrack.com. But sadly, they stopped updating the information on their webpage uh, in June. So the site's still up, um, but the page is no longer being updated. I hope everything is okay with whoever is running it. So now I'm going to be reporting uh, raw numbers of arrests with updates on some other and some other data points um, that have been produced by uh, Gen Six Data, uh, who you can find on Twitter. I want to thank Twitter. I want to thank them uh, for letting me use them. Look look at their information uh, at Gen Six Data on Twitter. They provide regular updates. Currently, we are looking at. Uh, 1,160 defendants who have been charged in the January 6th attack, including, of course, Trump himself. Trump was the 1,109th person charged. Now, because I kind of skipped over a lot of the uh, statements of fact over the summer, 
Um, I made a point of looking at uh, some of the selected defendants. Uh, basically, everyone who had a press release, uh, there were 44 of those. So, over the course of the summer, taken as a whole, the Department of Justice was very active in pursuing January 6th arrests. So, from June 1st through September 15th, 118 defendants were charged. That is a rate of 8.42 defendants a week, which is comparatively high. I think it's uh, one of the highest rates observed since sometime around, uh, you want to get higher numbers, you have to go back to like the fall of 2021. Of course, you know, in the immediate aftermath, we're never going to see those numbers uh, again. Uh, you know, those, those were crazy high. Um, but you have to go back to 2021 to get up to this consistent rate of over eight arrests a week. Pretty darn good. So there's been this uptick in charges. Um, nonetheless, disconcertingly, even if arrests continue at this rate of over eight a week, it is still going to take an additional two years and three months to get through the backlog of identified defendants. Uh, approximately a thousand, according to people who would know, there's something like a, a thousand uh, people whose information has been supplied to the government and have yet to catch a charge. So that's concerning. Um, but I think there is some evidence to suggest that perhaps they're doing a little triage here. Perhaps they are arresting some people uh, who they might want to get off the streets a little bit quicker than some of the other defendants. Now, one of the odd things I've seen uh, some legal commentators say is that January 6th arrests have been slowing down. Right? Well, that was true in the spring. It's not true now. Uh, in fact, they, they are moving uh, still at this continued rapid pace that they developed over the summer. And the reason for this is, is pretty clear. Um, people who are saying this just haven't been looking at the docket at all. So again, you know, arrests increased over the course of the summer. And it also seems like fewer of these arrests have been for the, the parading defendants. And many more of them have been for AFOs. Uh, or for defendants who are significant in other ways. So again, it's currently estimated there, there are over a thousand suspects who have been identified, but as yet not charged. Um, as I mentioned before, the current rate of arrests, the statute of limitations is going to expire before everybody gets charged. The hang-up is pretty clear. It's a docket at the D.C. District Court. According to January 6th data, there have been 800 total convictions, and of these, 147 have been via either a jury trial or bench trial, and 653 have been via plea bargain. That's staggering. 18.375% of all convictions have been secured via a trial. That is a staggeringly high proportion of defendants who are choosing to go to trial, and that's part of the reason why there's a backlog. There's simply not enough judges on the bench. They don't have enough hours in the workday. 98% of all criminal cases in the federal system as a whole are resolved by plea bargain. So January 6th defendants are choosing to go to trial at a rate 10 times higher than in the population of all federal criminal defendants. There's no court system in the country that could withstand that. The dirty little secret of our judicial system at every level, in every district, in every uh, jurisdiction, is that we rely on plea bargains. They simply don't have enough judges to be able to, able to try all these cases, either in D.C. or in the system as a whole. Now, it's mystifying is why all these defendants are going to trial, right? 
Time after time, these defendants have complained in court that the jury pool in, in D.C. is too democratic, and so they can't expect a fair trial in D.C. So why are so many of them opting for a trial? Again, ten times as many, a rate that's ten times higher than the federal system as a whole. Some of this could be that they are facing a different incentive structure than most criminal defendants. Um, there is, of course, the issue of crowdfunding. Crowdfunding uh, is paying for the legal representation of many defendants. And also there are people like Sidney Powell who have been paying for the defense of certain other defendants. Um, rumored, you know, even, hey, Donald Trump himself is, you know, are they paying for, you know, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and people of, of that nature? So, again, uh, you know, perhaps there are, there are other ways that people have been funneling money to some of these defendants, um, you know. So that could be it, right? The fact that they're not having to, to pay for it out of their own pockets could mean that more of these folks are opting to go for a trial. Also, it seems like many of the attorneys, especially the private attorneys, I'm not talking about public defenders, but the private attorneys, seem anxious to uh, let their clients go to trial, even though this is pretty much legal malpractice, right? Every defendant is going to get a longer sentence if convicted at trial than if they accepted a plea bargain. And you just go through. And if you look at sentences, uh, although you should really probably do this in a more statistically sophisticated way, I mean, uh, than, you know, what I've done, just kind of anecdotally, similar defendants who wind up going to trial and getting sentenced wind up getting ultimately a sentence that's about twice as much as what they get if they accept a plea bargain. So why any of them would want to go to trial, I don't know. It doesn't make very much sense. But that's the hang-up, right? The hang-up is spaces in the docket. Part of the reason for there's, there's no space on the docket is that there are so many trials, and that's the reason for the, the pace of arrest. They don't have enough judges in D.C. to be able to try these cases, um, assuming that one in every five of them are going to go to trial. So that being the case, you know, they're, it looks like they're just kind of doling them out. There's some kind of triage process going all along, and they are the the choke point is basically where they're they're issuing new charges, because even you know after you charge someone that that fills up your docket. There are still hearings that you need to have, speedy trial tolling, all kinds of things starting to happen. So that's the backlog, and that's the reason why they're kind of parsing these out. Now, of the forty four defendants who were uh, important enough to warrant a press release. Um, their average age was a 43.5, slightly older than the average age overall of capital defendants, which uh, has been, always has been, around 40. Um, interestingly, uh, there's been this long, long-standing pattern of geographic distribution. Uh, I like to look at people who are residents of former Confederate states. Out of um, these defendants, 60.71 were residents of former Confederate states, which is unusually high. Um, there, there had been a preponderance of people from the, the Northeast. This past summer, a lot of people from uh, more southerly states were arrested. Um, of these 44, and again, I'm selecting on the dependent variable. I know that that's a problem, right? By definition, the people with press release are going to be with people who are, quote, more interesting. But of these 44, 
92.86% were charged with a AFO or a felony civil disorder charge. Um, it's, it's hard oftentimes, you know, to see where they, they draw the line, but basically, uh, you know, there, there's, there's an invisible line where if, like, if you're more violent, you get the AFO, you know, if you're limited to different behaviors um, that, you know, don't include, like, things like overtly striking, maybe you pushed a couple of times, you know, you might get the civil disorder charge instead. Um, it's a line. I trust that they are uh, looking at that rather carefully. But again, almost 93% of this sample of cases were charged with AFO. That's a large proportion. Again, overall, in the early days, many more proportionally were parading defendants. So even if you assume that all those other folks in uh, the over 100 defendants who were charged this summer were paraders, still higher a proportion of AFO defendants than we had seen um, in, you know, other, other times when the rate of arrest was as high as it is today. 56.81% uh, of the cases that I looked at were investigated by agents assigned to Joint Terrorism Task Forces. So there's that other question, right? So we know the holdup is at the D.C. docket. Where are the investigations being conducted? Well, some of them uh, appear to be being conducted by people who are... Um, you know, special agents who are assigned specifically to work these cases, but it appears that what the main route that they are using to conduct these investigations are via joint terrorism task forces in the geographic area that is covered by these particular defendants. So, to my mind, this, this geographic distribution is pretty interesting. Um, you know, it was uh, kind of stacked earlier with... Uh, the distribution of cases mainly consisting of people within uh, driving distance of D.C. Um, this summer trough of cases includes a lot more people uh, from what we might consider the Deep South than we've tended to see heretofore. So I'm going to take a look at some of these. I'm going to summarize and analyze some of the interesting questions in the statements of fact and focus in on some questions that I think are significant for how we saw such progress this summer and the ways and places in which we saw this progress. So as we move to looking at these, um, I'm going to actually touch on some things I looked for in the different charging documents, and it's because of some interesting information I've, I found in some of the uh, statements of fact. Now... Obviously, you know, there's a sheer number of AFO defendants who are arrested over the course of this past summer. Um, and just, you know, kind of observationally, there were a number of arrests and cases that have been identified by sedition hunting's uh, people long ago. Now, there, there's, there have been issues uh, with so-called FBI whistleblowers, which has also piqued my interest. Uh, for example, if you look at the Charlotte Field Office, um, it is a place where one of these so-called whistleblowers, Marcus Allen, was assigned. Now, Allen has made the news for having his security clearance yanked after sharing a Twitter post claiming that, quote, Nancy Pelosi staged January 6th. Now, I'm going to offer some advice here. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, you probably shouldn't be posting political stuff on Twitter, but certainly not material related to cases that are being investigated 
by your office. So that's kind of a red flag uh, for me for North Carolina cases. Why? Well, if you look at Virginia and South Carolina, um, North Carolina lags behind, and yet nothing that I know about North Carolina would lead me to believe that North Carolina is going to contribute fewer people to the mob that attacked the Capitol than neighboring states. That doesn't make any sense. So that is something that, you know, are there people, is there an issue at the Charlotte field office? Uh, again, if you're uh, an FBI agent who is willing to make public statements regarding cases that are being investigated by your office, might you not also try to aid these defendants in some ways? So kind of, you know, looking at these cases uh, with a little bit of that in mind. Um, in the end, by the way, I don't really find anything to really substantiate that. Um, nonetheless, it's one of the reasons why I was looking at the identity of the defendants, uh, sorry, the identity of the agents, uh, some of the identifying information. Um, I did wind up learning, you know, again, some interesting things, particularly with regard to the assignment of these cases to joint terrorism task forces. So some of the things that I was interested in when looking at them was, uh, instances where there's no date given on the tip, um, because that kind of obscures, you know, how long it takes to, to investigate them. Also, cases where there's a long time between identification and arrest. So sometimes there will be a date given and then uh, nothing happens. And then, uh, boom, uh, some sort of investigative contact and an arrest initiated shortly thereafter. Um, and there's also something that I spot that uh, was rather strange, uh, which I'll get to in a moment. But basically, the duty station of the agent who is involved in the case. Is this, the, is this agent assigned to the place we would think they would be assigned, given the domicile of the defendant? Uh, that's a, a question that I, I looked at. Um, and there are some, some interesting little uh, kind of things that happen on, on that score. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just all this question related to the issue of uh, the defendants are being charged by whom and in what order, all right? I mean, in a traditional conspiracy case, it might be expected that the government would charge the little fish first and use these case cases to get the big fish, either through defendants cooperating as part of a plea agreement or through the synergistic way in which investigations can develop fact patterns that inform later investigations. Now, in the January 6th cases, as Marcy Wheeler at Empty Wheel has written, there's been an unusual pattern in which the government has sought to go after parading defendants who spent a lot of time gathering video evidence via live streaming or simply by taking photos, and it's a matter of record that data from the vices of those defendants have played an outsized role in the prosecution of later cases. But here, again, if you carry this logic too far, you can almost get into blue and on territory, right? Um, you know, they, one day there's going to be a massive dragnet uh, against the VIP tier of the conspiracy. The uh, fact of the matter is that, so far, Fonnie Willis seems far more interested in this tier of defendants than Jack Smith does. Smith is currently focused like a laser on Trump, but here there's so many others who seem to deserve federal charges, such as Keith and Kenny Lee of MAGA Drag the Interstate. So I'm also interested in uh, you know some of the VIP-linked defendants that we might see over the course of the summer. So, uh, overall, you know, hard to quantify it, but 
I think there's some evidence to, to suggest that the government is going after more prominent defendants who have uh, some legal exposure and possible connections to others. And I'm going to detail in this episode that there are a few defendants this summer who appear to perhaps be connected to a broader plot to attack the Capitol on January 6th. All right, so the first one I'm going to talk about is uh, Brett Rotella, a.k.a. Brett Ostrander of Kannapolis, North Carolina. His hashtag is Sleeveless Red Tattoos. Uh, he's also 82AFO. The agent in this case is an FBI special agent whose duty assignment is actually redacted. And now they say in the document that um, they work international and domestic terrorism cases and they're currently assigned to January 6th. I have not found this in any other instance where the duty station of an FBI agent has been redacted in the charging documents. Uh, in fact, there are instances where, you know, um, much more personally identifying information is left unredacted. So this is a really kind of an odd redaction. I don't know why they would do this. Could it be that this was a case that was being slow walked through the uh, Charlotte field office and uh, some other place took it over? Hard to say. Um, Rotella didn't move to North Carolina, so uh, perhaps that is the issue as well. All right, so who's Brett Rotella? Well, he's a big goon. And more importantly, he appears to have taken a leadership role within the mob. At various points, he seems to direct the members of the mob who are following him, and he directs them to wait, and they appear to await his instructions. Between 2.30 and 2.40 p.m. on the 6th, Rotella leads a large group of rioters in and around the area of the scaffolding and the inaugural stage. He then follows police to the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. Um, he's basically the tip of the spear there. And there's a lull between the time when officers first enter the tunnel and when the rioters attack. And Rotella is the second rioter to enter and was instrumental in breaching the glass doors at the end of the tunnel. Now eventually, Rotella gets hit with pepper spray and exits the tunnel at 2.55 p.m. And he also thereafter played a role in directing the crowd during the heave-ho attack and also attempted to push at police with a large aluminum ladder. So the identification process for Rotella is really vague. It says, quote, Following the posting of the bolo, law enforcement became aware that 82 AFO may be Brett Rotella. End quote. That's it. The FBI mentions three tips that it got that claimed he was someone else, but they ruled these out, and there's no other information regarding uh, date information until you get to July 27th, 2023, when they staked out Rotella's home in Kannapolis, North Carolina, and they spot him exiting his home with a woman and two children. Brett Rotella lives at a modest home on Jackson Street in Kannapolis, where he's registered as a Republican under the name Brett Ostrander. Um, the agents followed him to Aldi, where they appear to have taken a picture of him, which includes the tattoos that Rotella has on his arms, which appear to be a match to the tattoos on 82 AFO, including the word Brett in capital letters in what appears to be some version of Gothic script. They also verified that his phone was at the Capitol on January 6th, um, and so pretty, you know, solid identification. Uh, we don't know why Rotella changed his name to Ostrander. Uh, he did it in 2020. 
Um, there are other people named Ostrander listed as Kannapolis address, so presumably it's, it's some kind of family connection. Um, it would be more suspicious if he changed his name in 2021, right? He's assuming a new identity, of course. Um, but, you know, he did it prior to uh, the attack on the Capitol. Now, what's really odd in the Rotella case is that he was identified long ago, but it just took a long time to pick him up. And he does appear to play a leadership role. There's zero real information in the statement of facts um, uh, about, you know, how his identification took place. Simply that they got three tips and uh, they ruled him out. Um, but they got some other tip that, you know, and we don't know from whom, um, that, you know, gave them the actual identity. So... Yeah, this is a Sedition Hunters case, of course, um, and he is, you know, a, an interesting individual. Um, so, you know, they got the information to the uh, government relatively early, and again, his role is significant. He, despite having no known gang associations, appears to have come to D.C. with a role in mind, and he played that role, um, you know, he's acting like something like a, a parade marshal, but if a parade marshal was prepared to do violence, um, and that's, you know, there are any number of people who act in, in manners that is, is similar to that on January 6th. Um, it's really remarkable to me how quickly he was arrested after his identity was confirmed via the stakeout. Um, the question remains to me as to why it took them so long to conduct the stakeout. Again, we, we know the docket issues, but I pointed to the, the issues with the uh, Charlotte Field Office as an alternative hypothesis. Um, different moments, of course, he's, he's close to many people, but a lot of people in the mouth of the tunnel were. I mean, he's close at one point physically to Tunnel Commander, um, whose real name is David Mahaffey, someone I've covered here before. You know, he's an Ohio man with a long history of involvement with Operation Res Rescue and a long history of civil disobedience that's resulted in at least one civil case. Um, worth noting here, just entirely coincidental, uh, Kannapolis is a very kind of churchy place with kind of large non-denominational Protestant churches that are sometimes associated with Protestant fundamentalism. Um, but we don't know, you know. I mean, is there is there a network of sort of pro-life activists uh, at January 6th? You know, could, could that be Rotella's connection? You know, again, hard to say. But, yeah, it, it is interesting that, you know, this case could have been assigned to the, the Charlotte Field Office, and maybe that's why it took so long. Another case that I'd like to highlight, because it has an interesting uh, possible connection, is that of Nathan Bear. Hashtag Hitler Stalin Mao t-shirt. Um, interestingly, and this is weird, but Kevin Moore of the Washington Field Office uh, is listed as the agent. That's right. I'm looking for documents where the location of the agent has been re redacted. And here we find one where the agent's actual name is unredaction, unredacted. In fact, throughout the document, there are no redactions whatsoever. I don't know if this is on purpose. Um, there's also a case where a defendant has apparently moved to North Carolina. And according to the author uh, field of the PDF, the author was one... Uh, Carolina Nevin, who is an AUSA in D.C. Um, interestingly, if you look at the, the PDFs, some of them, um, they actually have author fields that are uh, populated. 
which is kind of weird. I would have expected that, you know, again, if they're redacting people's information, they would redact that as well. All right, so Nathan Bear. The first tip they get on him, um, I mean, first off, let's let's talk about, like, who he is a little bit. Um, Bear is a guy who is sort of, like, long, stringy, kind of balding-ish, um, red, gingerish, gingery hair, and he's in an iconic media photo of a kind of a standoff between him and, and Michael Fanone, where they appear to be, uh, Fanone appears to be screaming, and he appears to be shouting at Fanone. Um, you know, he looks like he's a tall, thin, pale ginger man, uh, again, with, with long, thinning hair, and it's perhaps because of this photograph um, that the FBI got a lot of tips regarding Bear relatively quickly. Quote, 15 tips identifying the individual as possibly being 14 different individuals, end quote. So perhaps part of the hang-up with Bear is that um, there's too much information, right? Uh, there's They have to winnow the chaff from the grain. Uh, so that, that kind of makes sense. On February 8th, uh, 2021, the FBI got a tip that showed a photo of Bear next to a photo of New York Opera Fest in 2019. Um, and it's clearly an image of the same man. Now, there's an extraordinary gap between this date of the tip and uh, what happens next. The FBI interviews the tipster on March 25th, 2022, more than a year after the original identification of an AFO defendant who appeared prominently in one of the more iconic images from the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. Right? So, they get the tip. February 2021, and they interview the tipster March of 2022. Um, again, that you know that could be backlogged, but it is a really long gap. Also, what another re reason why this, this fellow is interesting? Um, yeah, yeah, he's an opera singer, right? Uh, we've seen that before. Um, but if you visit his YouTube channel, which is still up you'll find that Bear is actually a huge Lyndon LaRouche fan. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Lyndon LaRouche, um, but Lyndon LaRouche used to be a far left-wing nut job, uh, begins in the Vietnam War era, uh, affiliated with some Trotskyist organizations, forms his own group that basically becomes a cult. At some point, he becomes a far right-wing nut job. Um, and... Before he died, uh, he, he became a Trumpist nut job, because of course he would. So, Lyndon LaRouche runs this operation that has some bizarre characteristics. Um, but I think I may be the first person to discover this connection, which is kind of odd, because many people have looked at the video of Bear, and I'm saying this, and probably a whole bunch of people will DM me and say, no, we knew that this guy was Lyndon LaRouche guy all along. Um, but he has a long association with LaRouche if his YouTube channel is to be believed. So uh, he starts posting Lyndon LaRouche videos 13 years ago. Um, you can find his YouTube channel. Uh, it is American Patriot is the name of the channel. Uh, I know, really original. Uh, and if you just look for uh, Nathan Bear, B-A-E-R, uh, you'll find it. Now, at some point, Bear, again, a New Yorker, moved to Asheville, North Carolina. Um, 
And I, I'm sorry, I think I was confusing Rotella. Rotella, I believe, is actually from Kannapolis. I don't think he moved to North Carolina, but Bear did. Now, I wonder if there's any significance to the fact that, you know, his hand case was handled from the Washington field office rather than Charlotte. So, kind of interesting. Um, maybe it was because, you know, he's from New York and moved to North Carolina. I don't know. Um, but... There, there are a fair number of cases that, be, that were handled from the Washington field office, so I, I wouldn't read too much into this, you know. Um, but it's a question, right? I mean, was it just sort of languishing in Charlotte and then someone at the WFO took over in March of 2022? Who knows? Uh, also, I do want to thank Jules, uh, previous guest on the show, uh, for pointing out, uh, when I put out the question, that there was, in fact, a Lyndon LaRouche table at January 6th. That's right, a table, that's where you hand out information brochures. There's a large sign. Um, Lyndon LaRouche, the LaRouches were there on January 6th. They were passing out their usual kinds of propaganda to people. Uh, Bear does not appear to be physically with them at this table. Um, but nonetheless, there are LaRouches in the mob. And here we have one. Um, so it's... You know, these are people who could fly below the radar, right? I mean, they're not necessarily wearing Lyndon LaRouche gear, uh, although I do wonder about that Hitler-Stalin Mao t-shirt. It, it kind of sounds like something a LaRouche would wear. Nonetheless, um, you know, this is one context where LaRouche people uh, might be actually blending in. You know, they, I mean, LaRouche people are fairly normal when compared to some of the other members of the mob. Um, but yeah, something to look out for. Anyway, I don't know if people have been looking for uh, LaRouche affiliations among uh, the, you know, the many, many diverse far-right factions that attack the Capitol on behalf of Donald Trump. All right, next uh, we'll move on to Alan Michael St. Ungi, O-N-G-E, uh, hashtag Hawaiian Morning News. Uh, the agent in this case was, quote, tasked with investigating criminal activity in and around the Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021. That's it, by the way. And I actually think that's a good way to do it, right? There's no information about the office, no personally identifying information. It doesn't read like a job application. It's just, I'm an FBI special agent. I'm working these cases. That, I think, is a good way to do it. First tip, uh, quote, uh, Footage depicting the events at the U.S. Capitol building and grounds on January 6, 2021, law enforcement identified an individual who pushed against police and aided other rioters near an entrance to the U.S. Capitol. End quote. And the government states, quote, On or about November 15, 2021, sorry, November 2020, employee one was interviewed by law enforcement and was presented with two unlabeled photographs of St. Ong at the U.S. Capitol. The officer confirmed the identity of the individual in the photographs of St. Ong based on his prior interactions with St. Ong. So it's unclear what the November 2020 is supposed to be. Is that November 2021, November 2022? Obviously, it's incorrect. The FBI is incapable of time travel. Um, it's just a typo. You know, no big deal there. But... Again, why am I interested in this guy? It's another North Carolina case. Uh, and there's just no mention of where the agent who investigated the case was stationed. We don't know if it's the main North Carolina field office in Charlotte 
or one of the satellite offices in Asheville, Hickory, Raleigh, Wilmington, Greensboro, Greenville, or Fayetteville. Uh, for that matter, again, it could be an agent in another state altogether, Washington Field Office. There's just no information on any of it. Um, as a matter of fact, there's not a lot of these statement facts are really good. Uh, there's not a lot of information in this one, period. Uh, it resembles many of the early January 6th cases in this regard with documents that were very short and punchy because the volume of cases was fast and furious. Um, that being the case, could it be that this actually is one of those early documents? That perhaps it really was that you know they, they got this information in November of 2021 and this case has just sort of been sitting around, they haven't really done anything with it, and they finally decided to, to pick them up this summer. Who knows? But again, another North Carolina case um, that could have been handled out of Charlotte, but we don't really know. Next one, Anthony Mastuandano, age 60, hashtag shield grampy. It's picked up uh, August 23rd. Uh, the agent in this instance, there's a long redacted section. Probably, again, too much personally identifying information. Uh, Mastuandano was a North Carolina agent at the time of his arrest, but there's uh, no information at all about the agent. Uh, all we know is it is an FBI special agent. All right, when did they get the first tip? Well, this is a rather complex identification. Following the arrest of Glenn Croy of Colorado Springs, Colorado, in February of 2021, the FBI finds an agent, an image of Mastuandano in the Capitol on Croy's phone. Croy was himself ultimately sentenced to 90 days home detention and 14 days in a community correctional facility. CCTV video shows Mastuandano entering during the first breach, four minutes after the windows were broken by Pizzolo Bozell and others. Um, there is an odd reference to the open source community in this document. Quote, the FBI then reviewed video footage that is publicly available over the internet through video sharing websites and social media platforms. Third-party entities created websites which posted and categorized these videos in an effort to identify individuals who might have committed criminal acts. End quote. Now, the FBI implies that they use this to find more video of Mastuandano. Um, who knows? Could be that they were sent this material, uh, but it's rather consistent with the trend that we've seen recently in government kind of downplaying the, the cooperation of volunteer sleuths. Um, the FBI has used various names, of course, in the past to allude to the sedition hunting community. Uh, these agents seem to prefer third-party entities. So, third-party entities, thank you for your service. Um, although, again, I do think that this is one where it looks like, uh, especially through the, the analysis of Croy's phone, uh, the government really also did play a, a very leading role in at least confirming, if not making, the very first identification. There's this, there's this, another quote here, quote, Certain unknown individuals have been given nicknames by third-party entities for the logical categorization of their open-source video appearances. The individual described and pictured above was given the hashtag name of hashtag shieldgrampy due to his age and his use of a stolen police shield to assault MPD officers at the entrance to the tunnel. End quote. So, anyway... Third-party entities, thank you for your service. That is one of my favorite euphemisms that they've come up with so far. 
Now, the video shows Mastrondano in the mob as the mob fights officers in the crypt and at the entrance to the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. The statement of facts then delves into the process of obtaining data from Mastrondano's Facebook account uh, without ever actually discussing how they came to zero in on that in the first place. Uh, so again, no real concrete data on his identification, uh, but it is nonetheless a very thorough statement of facts, and the FBI followed up on the identification by contacting Mastundano's employer, who verified that he was absent on January 6th and 7th, by contacting a witness that uh, Mastundano had interacted with at work, who's also able to positively identify him by using credit card receipts to show that he made a, a purchase at Royal Farms in Elkridge, Maryland, while en route to D.C., and even using images from the cameras at the Veranzano Narrows Bridge to positively identify his vehicle en route to his home on January 7th. It is an interesting question to me, though, were people moving to North Carolina because they thought this was sanctuary? I don't know. Um, but, you know, that, that would be a, one explanation as to why there are possibly fewer North Carolina cases than one might expect. But, in any event, those are the North Carolina cases from the summer. I know it's parochial of me, but again, the whole Marcus Allen thing, um, I'm not the first person to... Uh, look at this, you know, the question of what's happening at different field offices. Um, there's nothing concrete. None of them appear to have been definitively run by the Charlotte field office. Can't really prove a negative, um, you know. But to the extent that perhaps there was slow walking, I think that that realization has been made and someone, uh, you know, has rerouted these cases or made sure that good people are assigned to work them, and perhaps the pace of arrests in North Carolina uh, will speed up. Um, you know, and interesting question, hypothetical anyway, you know, to what extent are these so-called FBI whistleblowers representative of other people who may not have been doing necessarily the greatest job with regard to January 6th investigations? All right, so now I'm going to turn to the other Carolina, uh, the lesser Carolina, South Carolina, a uh, state that's inferior to North Carolina in every way imaginable. Um, if Trumpism has infected the uh, Charlotte field office, what about South Carolina? First to secede. Um, interestingly, we actually have a very notable case from South Carolina this summer, and this is yet another case where the arrest took quite some time to accomplish. This is Tyler Bradley Dykes, 25. Goose in Gray, hashtag Goose in Gray, hashtag Gray Goose. So there's no real identifying information regarding Dykes, other than the, uh, sorry, the agent in case, uh, other than the fact that it's an agent assigned to a joint terrorism task force, no mention of which one, uh, or the duty station. Again, probably the best way to do these. No need to put your whole CV in the statement of facts. The first tip. Quote, following the riot at the United States Capitol and the unlawful breach of the Capitol building, law enforcement officers and others reviewed the significant amount of photographic and video imagery in order to identify individuals who violated the law on January 6, 2021. Okay. Um, good. Thank you for your service. Uh, I like the use of and others here. Good. 
covers potentially a lot of people, but law enforcement certainly played a role. Unlike many of the documents that we're examining in this episode, the information here is actually quite specific regarding the first tip. It's in December 2021. Quote, the suspect is Tyler Dykes, lives in Bluffton, South Carolina. I was with Dykes, that's in uh, brackets, and we started talking about the January 6th attack. We had differing opinions about it, but was respectful. He then told me how he went into the Capitol with a mask on with the other rioters and started beating up police officers. He states he was still in the military at the time. He said he has video evidence of him being there, but did not show me since we were in a public setting. He was there for fun and wanting to make a statement. He was there with a, another group of people, but would not state who. I believe he was telling the truth about it, and I believe he needs to be investigated. End quote. So, thank you for your service, anonymous tipster who had this conversation with Dykes and reported it. Um, because this is someone who, you know, needed to be reported. Uh, the group that this informant appears to decline to name uh, would seem to be the Proud Boys, with whom the Dykes march around uh, the Capitol. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that the original identification is actually from the person who was personally known to Dykes, uh, despite the fact that he wore a gator all the way up his nose uh, on January 6th, Dykes actually become notorious for being one of the participants in the Unite the Right event in Charlottesville. And he was front and center as one of the main Tiki Torch parade photos used by the press. So it's a strange coincidence that many of these defendants this summer appear to be individuals who uh, had attracted a lot of media attention. Right? You have Bear, who's in this iconic photo photograph. Rotella, also slightly less iconic, but again, uh, rather significant. And, of course, Dykes, who uh, appeared in a very, very famous news image. Uh, the one you're thinking of, of the TKT torch wearing, you know, wielding Nazis at Charlottesville. That's, right, that's Dykes. That's Grey Goose right up front. So, the government also had information that was submitted in September of 2022, this time from a confidential human source that indicated that hashtag grade goose was dykes. So this could be an online sleuth, maybe, or perhaps it could be someone who was involved in the successful effort by anti-fascists to infiltrate the white supremacist group to which dykes involved. That's right. He's also, of course, continuing um, to be affiliated with white supremacist groups. He's a member of something called Southern Sons Active Club or SSAC. Now, that story, that infiltration, is too long to get into here. I'll link to an article from Atlanta Anti-Fascists detailing their extensive investigation, uh, but it also documented ties between SSAC and other groups, including Proud Boys, Patriot Front, and White Lives Matter. So, Atlanta Anti-Fascists, thank you for your service. So, yeah, a significant defendant. In any event, that would explain some of the delay in charging Dykes. Dykes faced charges in Virginia stemming from the Unite or the Right event. If anything, the odd delay here isn't in the Capitol case, it's actually in the Charlottesville case. It took six years to charge Dykes in Virginia 
for uh, what happened in Charlottesville, which was a clear-cut charge of burning an object with an intent to intimidate. There's an anti-Klan law in Virginia, as in other states, uh, saying that you can't burn any object with the intent to intimidate. And the Tiki tor Torch March was clearly that. So if you're going to light things on fire to imitate the nighttime marches of Nazis at Nuremberg, you should probably check out to make sure that the jurisdiction th that you're in doesn't have anti-Klan laws about burning things with intent to intimidate. And there's a whole history there. So anyway, Dykes was sentenced to five years in February of 2023, all but six months suspended. And so he goes into the state system and was released in July 17th, 2023. And picked up immediately by the feds for his January 6th case. So, fascinating case, right? You could do a whole episode on him. Like some other defendants we've covered in the past, he's one of those defendants who moved around a lot in January 6th, moved around a lot in the Capitol, um, shows up in a lot of contexts. He's also one of the attackers whose insurrection apologists, by the way, have accused of being a government agent. That's right, Grey Goose is, is, he's a Fed, right? They're probably going to continue to claim he's a government agent. Hey, now that Epps has been charged, who knows? Uh, but, well, Dykes has been charged too, so I, I don't see how that is useful. Um, in any event, it, it is not really a mystery here as to, to what the delay is, right? The timing of his arrest makes it clear that um, no matter when they learned of his identity, the feds wanted to let his state case play out before charging him. So that is one of those smart lawyering moves. Um, a lot of people were involved in this case, and it took a long time for charges to be issued. But with his record, Dykes is going to wind up facing a lengthy prison term, right? So that's the one of the added benefits of waiting for him to get convicted on this uh, felony intimidation charge. And, you know, okay, yeah, all but six months suspended. Oh, but wait, day you get out, boom, they pick him up again for being a racist, racist Nazi. And even Trump-appointed judges like uh, Trevor McFadden, you know, wind up having a special, giving a special bonus to racist Nazis at sentencing. Makes them look bad, right? Fascist, white supremacists, uh, you know, they want to distance themselves from those folks, and so they wind up getting a little bit of a bump. So, yeah, kind of a, a prominent and interesting defendant, um, but the delay, at least in this case, uh, is entirely understandable. They wanted to get that felony down on the books, and now he gets to, to face justice for January 6th, and he's going to go into it with a uh, state conviction that is going to get him even more time when and if he either pleads or is convicted at trial. And, uh, yeah, going back, by the way, I did check. Rotella um, was from North Carolina, apparently. He had a license, uh, driver's license that was issued in September of 2020, so he didn't move to North Carolina. I was probably getting him mixed up with another defendant in my mind. It's just an odd pattern. And, of course, you read enough of these things and you start seeing patterns that are probably meaningless. Uh, but I do seem to recall a fair number of people uh, who have moved to North Carolina. Uh, but, you know, that's just a thing that happens. Lots of people move 
to North Carolina because, you know, especially if you're from the Northeast, you can sell a relatively modest home and wind up with a, a very nice uh, house that you can afford. And uh, usually, uh, for a Southern state particularly, uh, you know, with good schools, um, and it's a lovely place to, to raise a family, you know, and presumably, probably some of these uh, Trumpists from blues places uh, come down here and they think, yeah, we're, we're going to go be with our people, you know, not realizing, of course, this is actually a very purple place. In any event, um, that sort of North Carolina side interest of mine, uh, I do think, you know, that we've got some catching up to do. One, one way or another, I don't believe that on a per capita basis, North Carolina really lagged neighboring states. For whatever reason it is, I just think that um, there may be a lot of these defendants from my home state who simply are out there and have not been apprehended or identified or something. All right, next, uh, again, going along with the, quote, more interesting defendants uh, who were arrested and charged this, morning, this summer, we have Tony Bray and Ethan Bray, who are hashtagged as the gas mask twins. So the agent in this case was from the Vancouver Resident Agency in Washington State, but was on a temporary duty assignment to the Washington field office. So in other words, from one Washington to the other Washington. Um, this is actually a relatively new agent who uh, mentions in the statement of facts that they joined the FBI in January of 2021. Um, this agent formatted the document a little differently than most of the charging documents. Uh, it's in Times New Roman, double space, so it looks like a little, little bit like a college essay. Um, although I actually appreciate this, it's, uh, the PDF is a little bit easier to read than most of them, uh, at least on my laptop. Now this is a case that at first seems a little inexplicable. So you have Ethan and Tony Bray, a father and son from Mississippi, who were arrested for a curfew violation in D.C. on January 6th. And they were wearing the same clothing that they wore during the attack on the Capitol. Uh, they were assigned the hashtag gas mask twins because they were identically dressed, wearing the same camouflage jackets, helmets, and gas masks. Now, nowadays, the uh, online open source community is not as credited as often as they used to be, but in these statement of facts here, it mentions that the sedition hunters gave the gas mask twins their hashtag. So, uh, by name, you know, specifically says it, it was, quote, sedition hunters. So, thank you for your service. Now, like Goose and Gray, um, these guys were pretty uh, ubiquitous. They were uh, prominent among the, the attackers. Um, they were in the vanguard of the mob. Uh, they were at the Peace Circle Barrier Breach, and they helped to lead the charge against law enforcement near the scaffolding. And they entered the Capitol at 2.22 p.m., at the same Northwest Senate door that was the site of the first window breach. Tony Bray's cell phone was not included in the geofence data, but everything about this says it should have been a relatively straightforward identification for law enforcement. Um, the Brays also stole a riot shield, and so Ethan Bray gets a charge for that. And Ethan also got charged with the felony of obstruction of law enforcement during civil disorder, 
which is one of those kind of borderline cases um, that, you know, again, we, we hear all the time from the sedition apologists, oh, these people are, they're getting charged with they're just learning them up, they're throwing the book at them. Uh, if, if this were the case, no one would be charged with this, right? Um, they would all, all these people would get AFO. They would all get assault on a federal officer. The fact of the matter is it's uh, a different felony. Uh, slightly less lower in magnitude. Nonetheless, um, you know they are making these very fine distinctions. So you know, if the, if it weren't the, if it were the case that they were being unfair, we would we wouldn't see this charge, right? They would just charge all these people uh, with assaulting uh, or resisting officer. Uh, in any event, so um, I, I just I just think they've, they've actually been consistent and conservative in the way that they charge these cases. So the Braves, identically dressed, gas mask wearing, uh, early early participants in the attack, uh, have been charged. All right, next, looking at uh, Matthew Brackley, thirty nine from Maine, a hashtag milkface man. Now the agent in this case is a Joint Terrorism Task Force special agent who's assigned to work January six cases. No further details. So you know again. Good, you know, probably the best way to do that. The first tip that they got, uh, the date is unknown. There's a Google warrant that included uh, Brackley's device as uh, one that had been within the geofence area on January 6th. So they get this information from their geofence saying there's this cell phone, there's this person who was within the geofence area at the Capitol. Brackley's phone number is listed unredacted in the document. Uh, 207-837-1238, along with the email addresses uh, nebrackley at gmail.com and matt at brackleyelectric.com. So, yeah, Matt Brackley has an electric company up in Maine. Well, uh, yeah, an, an electrician company up in Maine. There's also this description. Quote, FBI agents obtained Brackley's driver's license photo from a law enforcement database and ran it against video footage from the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. This returned numerous videos of Brackley inside the Capitol on January 6, 2021, including third-party footage taken from other rioters and news media and the Capitol's own closed-circuit television CCTV. End quote. So again, no date, but... Um, Brackley was eventually interviewed by agents at his home in West Bath, Maine, on January 5th, 2022. So, actually, I mean, again, not, not too bad there. You know, it's, it's only a year later, relatively fast, a day less than a year. According to uh, press accounts, Brackley lives in Waldboro, so it could be that maybe he's moved, I don't know. Um, or it could just be his business is in one town, and his home address is in another. They're quite close by. With regard to the behavior that's actually charged, the description of what he did, uh, Brackley entered the Capitol through the West Senate doors about 10 minutes after the window was broken, and he moves through the Capitol into the crypt, and then he and a group of attackers push past officers in a hallway adjacent to the crypt. And after going upstairs, Brackley appears to be one of the rioters at the head of a group moving through a hallway toward the Senate chamber. Uh, where they encounter law enforcement. Brackley, who's uh, wearing a, a Trump flag as a cape, like these people do, uh, was given what's described as a small push by an officer in the hallway who instructs the mob to back up. 
Now, Brackley doesn't do this, and he asks the officers where Speaker Pelosi's office is, and then leads the throng in pushing past two officers in the hallway. Shortly thereafter, a group of U.S. Capitol Police officers in riot gear appear, and, and they stop the mob from moving toward the Senate chamber. So there's a standoff between this group of officers and the mob in the hallway. And at some point during the confrontation, Brackley, who appears to be in the front line of the mob for most of this confrontation, he gets pepper sprayed. And he retreats, eventually exiting the Capitol at 3.05, having spent roughly uh, 40 minutes inside. So Brackley was given the hashtag uh, milkface man because he appears in a Getty Images photo by a photographer, Kent Nishimura, who captured the image of someone washing pepper sprays out of Brackley's eyes with milk. Um, it's, again, another one of those iconic photos. And it seems like this was a summer where they rounded up people who, you know, were in uh, a lot of very prominent uh, press photos. This is one of the photos that people might remember. Um, and, of course, you know... Again, it's one of those where it helps the identification because you've got a professional photographer standing maybe six feet away, right, using professional equipment to take a, an excellent photo of Brackley. There's no doubt that it's him. So in between January 6th and his arrest this summer, Brackley ran for the Maine State Senate as candidate for Senate District 24. And on November 8th, 2022, uh, Brackley lost this race by nearly 20 points. He earned 41.8% of the vote in his defeat by Democrat Eloise Vitelli, who, uh, you know, creamed him, right? So it's actually pretty mar remarkable. The FBI interviewed Brackley in January of 2022, but he still presses ahead with his campaign for Maine State Senate. Um... Interesting side note, uh, he was defeated by the majority leader of the state Senate, um, and this is actually a competitive district for the Democrats in Maine, even though it is predominantly a Democratic state. Um, but Vitelli is just, she's basically a good candidate. I think Brackley's kind of a sacrificial lamb. Who, we get, who can run? Let's, let's run this idiot. Uh, she, run the 20, she won the 2022 race by the largest margin of her career. So, good candidate against a terrible candidate, competitive district. Still 20 points. So, you know, that's, that's what you get. And this is another example of Republicans nominating uh, a MAGA extremist who actually didn't have a snowball chance of winning, but if anything, gave Democrats a bigger margin. Yeah, all these cases where you've got people who actually storm the Capitol, running for office, um, you know, not, not a great look. I mean, you're not, this is not how you're going to appeal to swing voters. Now, this case appears to be all about the geofence data, at least according to the document. Uh, the details and the identification, though, are, are very limited. Unlike some of the other cases, they don't actually verify his identity seven ways to Sunday. There are a lot of them where they're, they, 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 you know, we interviewed this person, we interviewed that person, we got the geofence data, we got, you know, all this stuff. I, I think, again, we've got this very clear photo, and it's clearly him. That's part of why they didn't need... Uh, to do that, uh, he makes a pretty unique impression. Um, he's extremely wall-eyed. Uh, I believe his right eye just kind of shoots out, you know, somewhere. Um, yeah, at a 90-degree angle almost. So, 
Uh, there's really, really clear images of him, uh, including one, again, taken by a professional photographer standing about six feet away. So, you know, they, they don't really feel the need to do this uh, belt and suspenders approach to identification, at least not as it's described in the charging documents. So, again, interesting case, because here you have someone who's actually, you know, appears in a prominent photo and also is uh, a candidate for office, right? Another MAGA extremist running for office while the FBI is interviewing him, while he knows he is, uh, you know, a person of interest in this investigation charged. Next, we have Jeremy Rogers, 28, uh, from Michigan. Hashtag freshman flagger, AFO242. Insider 1246. So the agent in this case was Nicholas Vanderplug, who's an FBI special agent in Bay City, Michigan. Um, he left the author field in the PDF populated, which is, you know, okay, I, just people need to just stop doing that. If you're doing reactions, just, you know, get someone who's a little tech savvy to do this kind of thing. Now, the first tip is um, described by the agent in the process whereby Rogers was identified, beginning with posting of BOLO information by the FBI, along with the notes that, quote, users of the social media website, Twitter, later gave AFO number 242 the nickname the Freshman Flagger to further identify him. So this is yet another uh, euphemism for people who are in the online sedition sleuth community, quote, users on the social media website, Twitter. Um, so I guess we would now say the, the social media website formerly known as Twitter. Um, but at the time, it was still Twitter. Anyway, uh, I'm probably never going to call it X myself. So he gives this hashtag, and they, they take a note of it in the charging documents. Um, Rogers, of course, has a baby face, so the freshman thing you know, kind of makes sense. He looks much younger than 28. Um, if he tried to buy beer from me, I would definitely card this kid. And, uh, the exact date of the tip that alerted the FBI to Rogers' identity isn't given. Uh, the best they can do is this. Quote, the FBI received multiple tips from individuals who knew Rogers personally and identified him as AFO-242 including by identifying him in the pictures on the FBI's website, end quote. So they're to be believed, these are actually, they're getting tips from the community, right? They're getting tips from people who are known to him personally, saying, that kid, that is, uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Rogers, I, I know him. And I always wonder, you know, what's the backstory? Like, did you not like him? You know, I mean, because if these people are, are being assholes on January 6th, they're probably assholes uh, in the rest of their lives as well. So these tips led the FBI to attempt to interview Rogers on December 19th, 2022, and Rogers declined to be interviewed. But the agent, the other agent who was with him, both identified him as AFO 242. So even if you, you know, decline to be interviewed, that's fine. Uh, but they can still make a visual identification at that time, and that still is good evidence confirming identity. The video uh, documents Rogers moving up the steps with his Trump flag toward the East Rotunda door. Now, there's no timestamp on the video evidence that is cited um, in his statement of facts, but Rogers is in the vanguard of the rioters assaulting the east side of the building. And this is an assault that was key to the overall penetration of the Capitol. Rogers then uses the stick upon which he has mounted his Trump banner 
to assault officers. One officer identified in the video was an FBI special agent who was treated for a concussion. Uh, they don't claim that he was, you know, uh, that this was the incident that caused a con concussion. Nonetheless, draw your own conclusions at sentencing. Rogers is one of the first attackers to enter the rotunda via the east door at or about 2.25 p.m. And uh, Rogers removes a temporary railing that had been placed at the far end of Statuary Hall and also exhorted attackers to move toward the house chamber. Rogers then pushes toward the house chamber and plays a leadership role at the vanguard of the mob. So we're talking about the house chamber doors here. Now, the statement of facts notes that um, in the well-known photo of officers guarding the doors to the house chamber with their weapons drawn, Rogers is right there. Rogers is at the front right about the time that that photo was taken. He would have been on the other side of the door. And he's there when the officers attempt to disperse the crowd, and he does eventually leave the area, heads back to the rotunda, where he tries to rally the crowd uh, before leaving the capital sometime around 3 p.m. Now, the agent was also able to confirm that Rogers made the trip to D.C. by examining the records from Rogers' credit union, which showed that he made purchases along highway routes to D.C. on January 5th and again on his return trip to Midland, Michigan on January 7th. So here again, yet another AFO defendant um, who doesn't really personally figure in an iconic image, but really is involved in an incident that became one of the uh, sort of you know, most memorable moments of the attack on the Capitol. All right, uh, now we go to a particularly prominent case. Jared Wise, 49, from Oregon, insider number 2393. This, uh, the agent in this case is Special Agent Jessica Stone from the San Antonio field office, which is just right there in the document, unredacted. Um, the, there's also, the author field in the PDF is listed as a J. Klein. Uh, Stone is assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So, yeah. Um, Wise, of course, is, you know, the time from Oregon but moves to Texas later, so it makes sense that you've got someone from the Joint Terrorism Task Force in San Antonio working in this case. The first tip that they receive, uh, we have a very definite date here. There's an anonymous tipster who gave information on Wise to the Washington Field Office on January 26, 2022, indicating that Wise was at the Capitol on January 6th and including Wise's date of birth, August 5th, 1972 his phone number, and uh, a possible address in New Brown Falls, Texas. So, anonymous tipsters, thank you for your service. Using that phone number, uh, the FBI was able to confirm that it did belong to Wise and that it was in contact with cell phone towers that serve AT&T customers in the area that includes the interior of the U.S. Capitol. And then they just dropped this in here in the Statement of Facts as if it's no big deal. Quote, I reviewed information received from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, that confirmed Wise was a special agent, a supervisory special agent, with the FBI from 2004 to 2017. End quote. So, bit of a big deal, right? Highest rank. Again, 
but there are feds in the crowd. Yeah, you're right. He was one of them. He got arrested and charged, okay? He's a former federal agent. They never talk about this guy. But the fact of the matter is, if you you know you wanted to point to the possibility of extremists in the FBI, yeah, yeah, there are, and they're Trumpists. That's who's assaulting the Capitol. It's Trumpists. There's not. It's not a false flag operation. You got people like Jared Wise, who's there. Um, in any event, yeah. But of course, this, we get into the, the rabbit hole of the so-called whistleblowers. Um, but you know, it's a small world. All these people know each other, um, and a bit of a big deal, right? Not just an FBI agent, but a former supervisory special agent. So someone whose career uh, got very advanced. CCTV video evidence shows Wise entering the Capitol through the Senate wing door at 2.23 p.m. Again, that's the same one, the same, the same breach. Uh, that, you know, Bozell and uh, Pizzola, uh, that area. You've Everyone's seen that iconic CCTV footage uh, with people moving into the Capitol uh, after they opened the doors. Yeah, Wise moves toward through the crypt and past the memorial door before returning to exit via a window near the Senate wing door at 2.32. So his intrusion into the Capitol lasts nine minutes. Uh, he just appears to go inside the Capitol, celebrate a little bit, and then just leave. Uh, really smart. Now, at 2.41 4, p.m., body-worn cameras capture footage of Wise telling law enforcement what he thinks of them. And again, uh, from the statement of facts, quote, You guys are disgusting. I'm former, I'm former law enforcement. You're disgusting. You are the Nazi. You are the Gestapo. You can't see it? Shame on you. Shame on you. Shame on you. Uh, that's the end of the direct quote, and the uh, statement of facts continues on. When violence against law enforcement began in front of Wise, including officers being knocked to the ground directly in front of him, Wise turned in the direction of the violence and shouted, quote, Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, kill them. A few seconds later, as assaults continued, he shouted in the direction of the rioters, attacking the police line, kill him, kill him, kill him. End quote. So, yeah, this is, you know, back to blue, right? Uh, former law enforcement reminds me of I. Gouger, Thomas Webster, you know, how many of them were in the mob. Um, and, yeah, you just, uh, this is a former federal officer, supervisory special agent of the FBI, Directing the mob to kill his, fe you know, his fellow officers, just incomprehensible, and you know, there's no excuse for it. Even though people will make or try to make excuses for it, um, it's interesting here that the, in this citation, of course, you know, I'm former, I'm former law enforcer. He was probably going to say I'm former FBI, and then he realized, oh wait, that that would probably be a bit of a dead giveaway. I'm just going to say that I'm I'm former law enforcement. Uh, you know, he thinks the better of it and decides just to be a little bit more vague. Now, this is a very short statement of facts, uh, only seven pages. So I do wonder if they've spent some time looking for some other behavior that Wise may have been engaged in at the Capitol on January 6th. But this is all they found, apparently. I mean, he's only inside the Capitol for nine minutes. Uh, but just noteworthy just because of the fact of who he is, right? Such a high-ranking 
former FBI official, and again, uh, the so-called, you know, uh, the, the, the January 6th community of apologists have nothing to say about Wise, nothing bad to say about him, right? I mean, they're, they're like, everybody's FBI. Hey, here's a guy who actually was FBI, and they're like, he's a patriot. Okay, thank you. Yeah, no, he's not. In any event, yeah, he is a patriot, uh, in the sense that you mean, but not in any legitimate sense, is this guy any kind of patriot. All right, let's move on to uh, another defendant from Texas. Uh, Philip Anderson, 28. Uh, hashtag, I am Philip Anderson. So this is a very prominent arrest. Um, the agent in this instance was uh, is described as a FBI special agent for three years, assigned to North Texas Terrorism Joint Terrorism Task Force, and currently working in January 6th cases. Uh, thank you, FBI, for your service. The first tip. Uh, Philip Anderson is one of the many defendants who, of course, may be familiar to regular listeners of the show, not because I've mentioned him before, but just because of how prominent he is in the sort of January 6th MAGA griftosphere, uh, the grifting community. Anderson appears to have been one of the people who I always thought of as marshals, right? Similar to Rotella. Um, some of these people have bullhorns, as Anderson does. Uh, as they are directing the crowd, and there are any number of, of people, uh, still others, who need to be arrested, who are performing this task. Again, I believe that this is evidence, and many other people have noted this, this is evidence of planning, this is an evidence of functional subdivision of labor. They, had, they went in, they had jobs, and they, they did their, their assigned tasks. So, you know, again, kind of like a parade marshal, um... But, you know, if a parade marshal has a loudspeaker, is leading a mob to commit political violence. Now, I, I've long believed, of course, that uh, the individuals who organized the attack itself on the ground uh, gave certain individuals these kinds of responsibilities. I mean, again, you don't bring a megaphone by accident. Um, and, you know, there's just, yeah, it's not spontaneous, right? These are not spontaneous bad acts. Now, there is a photo in the Statement of Facts of Anderson um, directing the crowd uh, somewhere in, in the vicinity of the mall, um, perhaps somewhere on Pennsylvania or Constitution Avenue. Um, he's exhorting them with his megaphone, saying, quote, It's time to go. We're occupying the Capitol. Let's go. End quote. Right? So that area of the mall, Constitution, Pennsylvania, it's hard to tell which pathway he's on. Um, you can see the, the, the Capitol Dome in the background. And again, you know, Anderson's in on it. He breaks the milkshake rule here, right? He knows they're going to go and occupy the Capitol. And in fact, you know, um, long before they are on Capitol grounds, he is telling the crowd, we are going to go occupy the Capitol. You know, similar to Ray Epps, right? That's what, that, everyone knew that that was what they were going to do. Now, again, bit of a giveaway that Anderson understood the plan on January 6th. He also mounts the Peace Monument, which is the, the uh, central statuary at Peace Circle, and from there he exhorts the crowd from an elevated vantage point. Anderson heads up the steps to the Upper West Terrace at about 3.02 p.m., with a large throng of trumpets, and he continues to cheerlead the crowd 
the whole time he does so. At 3.17 p.m., he enters the Capitol at the Senate wing door and is confronted by officers in riot gear and leaves shortly thereafter. Um, so part of why he's, he's, you know, he enters uh, much later than many of the other defendants that we're discussing um, is because, of course, he's spending his time speaking rather than personally attacking, mostly. Um, Anderson does take part in the heave-ho shoving attack in the front of the Lower West Terrace Tunnel, and he eventually makes it into the tunnel, but is pushed back, and so goes back to his, you know, preferred role, making speeches. So, when is the first tip? That's the behavior. When did we get the first tip? On January 10th, 2021, the FBI Washington Field Office is forwarded a tip that came to from the MPD. So, in other words, someone gave a tip to the MPD. That tip is then forwarded to the Washington Field Office by the MPD. That included a TikTok video that featured Anderson saying, quote, My name is Philip Anderson, and I am fighting to save this country. I'm fighting against big tech. I'm fighting against corruption. I'm fighting against a stolen election. End quote. Now, Anderson first uh, came to prominence and garnered attention when, on October 17, 2020, he was engaged in an altercation at a fascist event that he had personally organized in San Francisco, where uh, apparently he got his, his front teeth knocked out. So, um, he, this results in a, a distinctive appearance in, in some videos, you know, uh, depending upon date when he gets his dental work done. Uh, there's plenty of pictures of Anderson with it and without his teethies. So, this in any event got Anderson some publicity and uh, it got him an appearance on InfoWars, notably. So, this is someone who's, you know, connected up with Alex Jones. And um, it also got him donations to his personal grifting organization, which he calls Team Save America. Um, now, Joe Biggs had some words to say about Anderson. Uh, he did not like the way the San Francisco event where Anderson was assaulted was organized. And he uh, said in a video on Telegram, quote, This was piss poor planning and people got hurt. You should be ashamed of yourself. End quote. So, yeah, right. Let them fight, but whatever. Like, you know, this is someone who's, you know, doing such a bang-up job that even even Joe Biggs thinks that he's not not a great Trumpist. In any event, Anderson has a gives-and-go uh, for his legal account, his legal expenses, that has raised over $9,000 toward his $250,000 goal. So, um, yeah, for someone who's so prominent, you would think that Anderson would uh, have a bit more in his account um, at this point. But again, rather recently charged. Again, really curious. He's such a prominent figure in the January 6th Griftosphere, but it still took two and a half years after the first tip to arrest him. And this is someone who probably knows some stuff. So, um, you know... Does it mean anything that he's arrested later rather than earlier? Who knows? Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I just checked again uh, since I wrote this. Um, Anderson's uh, account has gone up a little bit. He has now raised about over $10,500. 
Um, of course, I, worth mentioning, uh, probably Anderson uh, happens to be a African-American Trump supporter. And, uh, you know, this is useful, right? This, he is the, you know, someone who they can point to and say, see, see, we're, we're diverse. Even though, you know, you know 95% of the defendants in these cases uh, are white men. That's, I guess, but that's not, it's not the actual figure, but it's predominantly, you know, a whiter, older uh, crowd. Typically, you know, the, the Trump crowd at, on January 6th is very similar to the Trump crowd in the electorate. All right, next we're moving on to Lowell Gates, 63, uh, hashtag brown jacket jabber. Now, the agent in this case is FBI special agent assigned to Philadelphia, currently assigned to work January 6th cases. And the first tip comes in in early 2022 when the FBI received, quote, various tips identifying brown jacket jabber as Lowell Gates. So that's it, really vague, nothing on who gave them these tips, on the nature of these tips, but roughly, you know, identified uh, a year after the attack on the Capitol, according to the statement of facts anyway. Gates is a very prominent real estate developer in Pennsylvania, so that's why he's noteworthy. Uh, says a lot that someone who owns a multi-million dollar business would attack police on January 6th, but that is what Gates appeared to do. Um, by the way, they do take the ability to pay in account at the restitution sense, uh, phase of sentencing, and so I hope there might be some kind of financial penalty to Gates, because he certainly does have the ability to pay here. And quite frankly, you know, it'd be great if they just bankrupted him. This is a 63-year-old man who beat up multiple police officers with a flagpole on January 6th. And that just blows my mind, right? You've got so much to lose. You know, supposedly, at your age, you know better, right? This is someone who's an established figure in the community. He's a businessman. And yet his judgment is so poor that he's going to go to the Capitol at the age of 63. Oh, actually, that is current age, 61, whatever. Again, you're in your 60s, and, you know, you've got these assets. You're, you're not an anonymous face in the crowd. You're doing this in broad daylight on video. You're, all these cops have body cameras, and you're, you're all in. I mean, just the, the lack of judgment. Stunning. But, of course, that is, if you are uh, someone who follows these cases, probably related to the reason you would have heard of Mr. Gates. Because among his many rental properties, Gates happens to rent to Scott Perry, a key figure in the fake electors plot. So, through the speech and debate clause, of course, Mr. Perry himself appears to have been given sort of absolute immunity from having his uh, communications subpoenaed. But, hmm, you know, it would be interesting to see what, what is there, are there communications between Mr. Perry and Mr. Gates? Is this just a coincidence that Mr. Perry's landlord is at the Capitol and while Perry himself is helping to organize things on, on the political side? Um, you know, who knows? But DOJ presumably has the contents of uh, Scott Perry's uh, landlord's cell phone. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not sure that this is a coincidence. You know, there's so many Philadelphia people, Philadelphia, well, sorry, Pennsylvania people 
who are connected to one another. And uh, this is, you know, this would be a really coincidence of coincidences if there was nothing going on between the man who happens to be Scott Perry's landlord, who also happens to be assaulting police, and, of course, Scott Perry himself, you know. Um, are, there, are, there, are there texts? That would be something interesting to find out, and not protected by the speech and debate clause. Now, this is another case that really shows the depth of the Trump delusion. Again, um, it's surprising if some incel in some basement who's mind-washing themselves for hours every day, watching Nick Fuentes and then going to D.C., and attacking police. Um, but again, political violence, typically and historically, has been something that's perpetrated by the young, but the average age of defendants all along has been 40, and it's remained 40, and it's really, really strange to have older defendants engaging in political violence. That's just not what happens in the literature. Political violence is typically done by disaffected young people who don't have much to lose. And this is someone who's a lot to lose. You know, this is someone who, like many other people like him, um, you know, put all on the line for Donald Trump. Now, there is a plausible reason why it would take longer to make this arrest than some of the others. In an interview in October of 2022, Gates admitted being to the Capitol, and he identified himself in photographs. Uh, he also gave the FBI number, a fo phone number that he claimed was his, but that number didn't ping any of the cell phone towers uh, that were covered in the subpoena during that period. Gates also claimed that while on the West Plaza, he was near some capital attackers who were sprayed, um, and he felt the effects of that spray himself, and he himself was hit by a rubber ball. Um, but, despite all this, he claimed that he did not take any retaliatory action toward police. All of this, of course, is a lie. Well, he was at the West Plaza, probably did get a little gas, probably did get hit by a rubber ball, but um, the FBI, by the time they would have conducted this interview, certainly would have already reviewed that video. Why Gates isn't charged with lying to the FBI here? I don't know, but he certainly did lie. At 2.29 p.m., uh, on January 6th, Gates is captured on body-worn camera footage assaulting police with his flagpole. And there are multiple camera angles of the assault. And according to the statement of facts, Gates appears to strike at officers three times. So he winds up getting charged with AFO and five other counts. So, yeah. So that's why he's prominent. That's one reason, you know, again, this is Scott Perry's landlord, a uh, guy who runs a rather large... Uh, real estate development business, you know, go to the Capitol for the sake of Trump and uh, beating cops with a flagpole. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't mention one other thing. There's another reason why uh, Gates has shown another incident in which Gates has shown poor judgment. Um, in October of 2021, Gates was charged with public lewdness for walking around his neighborhood pantsless, sans pants. So on the webpage of this company, uh, Linlow Properties, there are 10 people identified as being managerial employees of his firm, including a woman I assume is his wife, Linda Gates, who works as the chief operating officer, and who enjoys spending time with her four grandchildren, uh, her four children and six grandchildren. Um, I don't know, you know, maybe Linda can take over the company and get Lowell the help he needs 
because this is a man who is very, very unwell. Um, he's got at least two dozen people working in his construction landscaping, landscaping teams and uh, is, you know, just throwing it all away in the service of Donald Trump. Next up, Peter G. Maloney, 58, of New York, a hashtag Black Bono helmet. The agent is from the uh, Long Island Joint Terrorism Task Force, a special agent there. Uh, the PDOF author field lists one S. Murphy. Now, the author decides to use a slightly different format than most, including a section listing the charges against Maloney, which I actually think is, is very helpful. Um, these things are not standardized. Uh, some of them are, I mean, they're, they're standardized elements. A lot of things, uh, boilerplate is used. Um, but, yeah, I actually, I, I really like them. <laughs> He's such a nerd. I like the way this, this document is formatted. It's useful and helpful, the way they, they list the charges there out front. Very, very good. Anyway, the first tip that they get for Maloney, uh, there's no specific date. And this is a case that is rather complicated, as the agent notes, uh, because the clothing that Maloney is wearing changes quite a bit over the course of the day on January 6th. Maloney has a bike helmet and a knit cap and what appears to be a surgical mask and a black gaiter or scarf, and he mixes and matches to get a different look at different points in the video. Um, so, once again, there's no specific information as to how Maloney's name is associated with Black Bono Helmet, um, but the document does show images of Maloney taken from the website for his business, so it may have something to do with that. So, like many recent cases, the government doesn't explicitly credit the open source intelligence community, but the statement of facts shares a lot of the commonalities with the other documents that do credit the open source intelligence community. Uh, it refers to many of the videos used in the statement of facts as OSINT video, which is a bit odd, uh, of course, because any video can be uh, OSINT video if it's used for the OSINT purposes. Um, nonetheless, that's, you know, that's where they're getting the identification in this instance, even though they don't say uh, when, where, and how. The Statement of Facts uses footnotes to show different Sedition Hunter accounts uh, that are the sources of some of these videos. So, again, yeah, that's where they, they get the identification. Thank you for your service. It's a very long document. It's a very detailed account of Maloney's actions on January 6th, and it clearly joins, uh, draws on a lot of help from the community, although the officer doesn't make a fuss about it, just puts in the footnote, this is where we get the video, um, and probably a good way to handle that. Now, I've talked about Maloney before, so I'm not going to spend uh, too much time on him again, but suffice it to say, he's a particularly violent defendant who, as the Statement of Facts notes, came prepared to do violence. Maloney brought black flag brand Wasp, Hornet, and Yellow Jacket spray with him, and is on video spraying it at officers. Video also shows Maloney assaulting MPD officers as they arrive to save Capitol Police, and also Maloney taking part in an attack on Associated Press Photographer. And, yeah, so this is AFO and Assault on Media case. Interestingly, the document also makes reference to the warning label you find on all pesticides, warning that it's a federal crime to misuse pesticides, but the government doesn't charge Maloney with misuse of pesticides for some reason. Maloney was also there at the Capitol with a much younger man who he apparently works with, 
who they call Colleague One, but this individual is uncharged as of the date in Maloney's charging documents, June 6th, 2023. Now, Maloney is prominent not just because he's, you know, uh, spraying officers with poison and is AFO and is all media, but also because he's got a business in the funeral industry, which can be a pretty lucrative line of work. So presumably he's not relying on a public defender. Um, I really hope that, you know, some of the people he assaulted on January 6th take civil action against him because, you know, he's got assets and, you know, again, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing these things. All right. So next up, we have another very prominent, very important case. Nathan Earl Hughes, 34 of Arkansas, hashtag I am Nathan Hughes. So this is a VIP defendant. The agent is a FBI special agent assigned with investigating January 6th. No office given, no other information. The date of the first tip is very specific here. January 8th, 2021. Uh, cite here from the Statement of Facts, quote, The tipster reported that Hughes was seen in Washington, D.C. wearing a gray hooded sweatshirt during the events at the Capitol. On January 19th and 18th and 19th, 2021, the FBI received a second tip that Hughes was present at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The second tipster said that Hughes was present in Washington from January 4th through January 6, 2021. And the second tipster provided links to Hughes' social media, including his Twitter handle, at, at RallyNate. So, pretty, pretty solid information there very, very early on. Nathan Hughes was charged on August 18th, 2023. So two years, seven months, and ten days after his identity was given to the FBI. Three days after the Trump Georgia indictment came down. It took Fonnie Willis less time to develop the complex RICO case uh, with 19 defendants than it did to arrest this January 6th defendant whose identity was given to them by an F you know, given to the FBI by a tipster on January 8th, 2021. So, something clearly going on with that. Could it be, and I'm going to throw this out there, could it be, and, and I know we've expected this for some time, it hasn't been happening, you know, there are all these people, like the Lee brothers from Maggie Dragon the Interstate, you know, really should be arrested. Could it be that they are now finally narrowing in on some of the uh, important organizer-linked defendants? This is what it might look like. You might see charges for people like Nathan Hughes, who I, I will discuss why he matters in a moment. But again, you know, there are docket issues. We understand that. Uh, they can't charge these defendants more quickly because it will take up more space on the docket. And so many of these cases are going to trial. January 6th is just taking over the docket in the D.C. entirely. And, you know, again... There's only 12 district court judges, nine senior judges, um, and, you know, that's, that's really all they can do. You can't manufacture more, more judges. Might be possible to transfer them to another venue, yeah, maybe eventually, um, but that's a path that the DOJ has decided not to go down. Uh, we could have a long conversation about that, but I, I think that that is the, the right decision. Very, very sensible. All right, so we can hypothesize a little bit. You know, they're, they're doing some kind of triage. 
The DOJ charged the more some of the more defend, important defendants earlier, uh, said the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and the like. Um, you know, they are not now, however, left with the dregs. There's still many important defendants uh, left to charge people like Shoes. Many of the AFO defendants who are being charged today are affiliated, uh, or may fewer, are affiliated with paramilitary gangs. So it looks like um, maybe, I don't know, you know, they went after those gang sort of organ, gang like paramilitary gang organizations early. Um, and now they are cleaning up some of these other people, um, you know, but Nathan Hughes is not some random AFO defendant. Nathan Hughes is a VIP. And so this is the case of uh, that the, a previous guest of the show, a guest who was previously on the show, Jules, uh, many other in the open online open source intelligence community spent a lot of time on. So thank you for your service. Um, very important case in part because so very few of the people associated with the VIPs from the Ellipse uh, did the fighting, right? They let the Proud Boys and the Normies from the mob do the fighting for them while they exhorted them to fight harder. I'm not going to belabor this point, but this is a man who assaults police in broad daylight, identified two days into the investigation, and is associated directly with a number of Trump VIPs, but it's taken over two and a half years to charge him. So if you decide to frame this in a conspiratorial mindset, you might say that the insiders are being protected. I'm not talking about insiders of the capital. I'm talking about the insiders of the, the coup organization. You might say, you know, that the FBI is corrupt and they're slow rolling this. This fits in with the Marcus Allen theory, right? Or, alternately, you might imagine that this is a sign that the end times are coming for the leaders of the Trumpist mob and that the FBI has at long last worked its way into the hub of the hub and spoke conspiracy, right? Because that's how it's supposed to work. You charge all these other people on the outside, you get find your way to the most important defendants, you're finally charging VIPs. So in, in this version, this hypothesis, you could say this is kind of like a, a reversal of the Great Awakening or the stone fantasy, the sorry, the, the storm fantasies of the QAnon cult, right? So now they're going to sweep down and arrest Roger Stone, Ali Alexander, Michael Flynn, Steve Bannon, Gavin McInnes, Patrick Byrne, and uh, the, the hundreds, you know, of, of people who form this nimbus of this Trump cultists who surround him. We don't know. But it's a hopeful sign, anyway, that Nathan Hughes is arrested. Now, before we go into the statement of facts, let's uh, talk a little bit about who Nate Hughes is and why he matters. None of this information is actually in the charging documents. Um, it describes Sachs, but doesn't really explore his connections um, explicitly. Now, they, they do, they hint at it, as I'll talk about in a moment, but they don't really explore it, so I'd like to do a little bit more detail on that. Um, first off, who is he? He's an associate of Cindy Chafian who is a key organizer for the events of January 6th. Chafian completed the Park Service permit application documents on behalf of Amy Kramer for Women for America First rally at the Ellipse, where she described herself as a VIP advisor. Cindy Chafian was, a, was subpoenaed by the committee and was a no-show for her interview with the January 6th committee, which would have been held on October 28th, 2021, and by the way, hasn't been charged with contempt of Congress. 
According to reporting from CNN, Chavian, by her own admission, played a role in bringing Alex Jones on board in the planning and organizing of January 6th. According to Chafian's statements, Jones reached out to Chafian in order to try to get a speaking slot at the Ellipse rally, um, one that he felt that he deserved because he'd contributed to the event financially. Chafian claims that Jones offered to pay a percentage of the costs and it, that it was up to her to find a way to cover the rest. According to the Wall Street Journal, which cites, quote, unnamed rally organizers, which may actually even be Chafian herself, Chafian turned to Trump fundraiser raiser Caroline Wren, and Wren was able to secure $300,000 from public's heiress Judy Fancelli. Chafian coordinated the rally planning with Justin Caporal and advisors for former First Lady Melania Trump. So this is someone who's got, like, you know, what, one degree of separation from Trump himself. All right, so that, I'm going through the, the, the history there. You know, it's complicated, not really. There's a split between Chafian and the Kramers. Uh, they didn't want people like Roger Stone and Ali Alexander speaking at the Ellipse rally. So Chafian then moved these speakers to a separate event on January 5th at Freedom Plaza, uh, now under the auspices of a group that she called the 80% Coalition, a group that she formed with her husband, Scott Chafian, on December 27th, 2020. And the speakers list for this event included people such as Russell Taylor and Alan Hofstetter of the American Phoenix Project, who I've talked about before, Owen Schroyer of InfoWars, and Brandon Straka of the Walkaway Movement, um, all of whom, of course, have been charged in connection with January 6th. So there have been some VIPs associated with Chavian who have been charged. Now, other speakers included Peter Navarro, George Santos, Joe Altman, Roger Stone, and the chairman of the uh, First Amendment Praetorians, Robert Patrick Lewis, as well as Black Robe Regiment Associates, Jeremy Liggett, Brian Gibson, and Greg Locke. So there's a lot of overlap here, by the way, with the Reawaken America, where Chafian has also been a speaker. So she's VIP of VIPs, right? She's right up there. This is an extremely important case, but, you know, again, because of all the Trump developments, Nathan Hughes' significance has not really been, yeah, it's not really been front and center in, in the media. Uh, haven't done a particularly good job, except for, the, of course, the, the regular, the, the usual suspects, right? The, the reporters who actually cover this beat, nonetheless, their editors haven't necessarily given this the prominence that I believe it is due all right, so what does Chafian have to do with Nathan Hughes? Well, Hughes rode from the Ellipse to the Capitol in a golf cart that was driven by Scott Chafian, Cindy's husband. And Chafian herself rode in another golf cart with Alex Jones' wife, Erica Wolf Jones. So Hughes is a known associate of another defendant, one John Mott, also of Arkansas, who was sentenced to 30 days in prison and three years probation earlier this year. Mott wound up headed for the rotunda, but Hughes decided to go to the Lower West Terrace Tunnel while Chafian and Jones, uh, not Alex Jones, Alex Jones' wife, Erica Wolf Jones, egged on the, the attackers and celebrated the attack on Officer Fodone, right? So what happens is, you know, they're, they go through the crowd and they're at the tunnel. And again, the organizer of the Ellipse Rally is there egging on the attack 
with Alex Jones's wife, while their buddy, uh, Nathan Hughes, goes inside the tunnel to assault police. So, I know it's a, it's a complicated cast of characters, but not really. This is someone with a direct connection to the organizer of the rally at the Ellipse that was held to benefit Trump. So there's a direct link between the attack on the Capitol and the, the Ellipse rally, which was supposedly, you know, was perfect speech, right, where he didn't do anything wrong. Also, Nathan Hughes is a friend of uh, yet another uh, seditionist VIP, Matt Couch. Uh, he shared a hotel room with Matt Couch, and um, Couch is a, a well-known extremist blogger who acquired a following by pushing various conspiracy theories regarding Seth Rich. So this is like the worst soap opera of all time, right? There's all these interconnected layers of people that you have to describe in order to get anywhere. Long story short, Hughes is there acting as a goon on behalf of the people who planned the rally at the Ellipse. And of course he's on Gifts and Go, and his legal defense fund has risen meteorically with over 64,000 raised to date. And he was charged not that long ago. He's one of the most violent VIP defendants, as we'll see now as I turn to his statement of facts. The statement of facts notes two tips regarding Hughes early on. Uh, there's also a screenshot from Matt Couch's Twitter account that appears to show the inside of a hotel room with a man who appears to be Hughes sitting with Couch watching television. Actually, he's got his phone. He's not really watching television. Uh, he's multitasking. The tweet from January is from January 4th and reads thusly. Uh, this is Matt Couch's tweet with the photo. Quote, all hands on deck working to get a leader and friend in our movement out of the corruption and grip of D.C. police and the tyrannical D.C. mayor. End quote. So Hughes is wearing a baseball cap with a frayed brim. Uh, that is a key identifying feature cited elsewhere. Uh, interestingly, by the way, Hughes is actually wearing his baseball cap backwards, which according to any number of January 6th defendants means that he is Antifa. You wear your baseball cap hat backwards, you must be Antifa. Um, that's a joke. <laughs> uh, Stuart Rose was fine saying, like, anyone's got their MAGA cap on backwards, they're, they're Antifa infiltrators, that's how you know them. Anyway, uh, Hughes also has a very oddly shaped ears, also key to his identification. Uh, the agent in the document calls them, them notches. Um, it's an odd descriptor. Basically, there's this really weird thin section near the anti-helix of the ear, and that they, they flop over at a, an obtuse angle uh, near the helix. Anyway, compared to many other charging documents, there are fewer data points to demonstrate how the FBI confirmed Hughes' identity. There's no cell phone geofence data, no interviews, etc. But it's interesting to see that they do include the, the tweet from Couch, right? Um, you go through Hughes to get to Couch. You go through Couch to get to Ryan Patrick Lewis and the First Amendment Praetorians, and you go through the First Amendment Praetorians to get to Scott and Cindy Chafian, and possibly others such as Alex Jones and Erica Wolf Jones. Now, according to the Statement of Facts, Hughes was in the vicinity of the Lower West Terrace Tunnel for over an hour, pushing against police and, quote, helping others fight against police. The agent notes that Hughes is wearing an uh, InfoWars-branded Space Force sweatshirt. 
So it's not enough that he's going there with Alex Jones' wife. Uh, he's, you know, this is a guy who literally is InfoWars branded during the assault on police. At around 3.15 p.m., Hughes exhorts the crowd to storm the tunnel and charges in himself. Once inside the tunnel, he continues to call for more attackers to assault police. Hughes then leads the heave-ho attack against officers with another individual named in the Statement of Fact as Individual 1. There's no other uh, information about Individual 1, by the way. I don't believe this is someone with whom he, he came to the Capitol. Uh, probably just a ran, another random MAGA cultist. Could be wrong, uh, you know, but uh, they just, it's unusual here. It's like, well, there's Individual 1. So usually that's reserved for someone whose identity is known. So maybe it is someone that, you know, I don't know, who's flipped or something of that nature. Or maybe it's just a really weird way of referencing an unidentified person. Um, anyway, but that, don't, that apparently I don't think it is too important. It's just he's leading this assault with this person. So... Yeah, at 317, Hughes' bandana falls down, which reveals his face on camera. Although, again, he's got the frayed cap, you know, he's got the info wars, uh, he's got uh, gloves, you know, he's, he's uniquely identifiable in all these videos. A minute later, attackers begin stripping officers in the tunnel of their shields, and Hughes takes part by grabbing these and passing them toward the entrance of the tunnel. Hughes then tries but fails to steal an officer's shield. By 319, officers manage to push Hughes and the other attackers out of the tunnel, with Hughes attempting to strip officers of their shields the entire time. At this point, Hughes launches an elbow strike against an officer who was holding a shield, and he then remains near the entrance of the tunnel for some 90 minutes. So that's what Hughes did on January 6th. Now, the charging of this individual is extremely important. This isn't some random guy who owns an axe-throwing shop in Arkansas. Um, I know I spent a bit of time explaining the relationships involved, but again, Hughes is in the same golf cart that carried Scott Chafian, the husband of one of the lead organizers, Cindy Chafian, and he accompanies Cindy Chafian up to the site of the longest and most protracted violent event you know, on January 6th, and Cindy Chafin is there with Erica uh, Jones, and they are egging on the violence while Hughes himself is taking part in the violence. And they witnessed a lot of it, right, including the brutal assault on Officer Michael Fanone, which they cheered on. So, again, Hughes stays in the same hotel room as Matt Couch, a leading figure in the far-right conspiracy propaganda network that dominates the contemporary Republican Party. So, probably the most important defendant that I'm going to mention in this episode. Um, by the way, I went through a lot more of these. These are, are kind of highlights. I'm not going to do everyone that I wrote up. I, I want to have copious notes for this episode. Um, but I would like to uh, now move on to another defendant. One, Barry Saturday, hashtag Denim Dad, um, who's remarkable for, as we will see, uh, different reasons than some of these other defendants. Nonetheless, interesting story here. The agent in this case is unusually uh, a deputy marshal with the Marshal Service, who is assigned as a task force officer to the FBI in Louisville. And 
an extraordinary amount of personally identifying information. Uh, he's also a detective, he or she, um, at the University of Kentucky Police Department. And you can probably identify the officer, but I you know, probably won't. I probably shouldn't have read the redacted names, even though, again, these wind up becoming uh, part of the uh, court information anyway, eventually. So, uh, unusual in this, in this event. Why, and I'm going to speculate as to why this is an officer from the Marshal Service rather than uh, the FBI in a moment. So the first tip that they get, the Deputy Marshal uh, makes the following claim. Quote, I identified Barry Saturday, who I further described below, as one of the rioters who participated in the push against the line of officers at the Lower West Terrace Tunnel. End quote. That, so the identification was done by the Marshal. And there's this rather long examination of Saturday's activities on January 6th, including the fight at the tunnel entrance. The Deputy Marshal also writes the following, quote, The FBI utilized a facial comparison tool which has been known to re provide reliable results in the past. With that facial comparison tool, the FBI compared the image of Saturday, as depicted in the videos above, with open source photos found in publicly available social media and local newspaper pages. End quote. Okay, sure. But then there's this, uh, immediately following that. Quote, FBI records revealed that Saturday was interviewed by agents at the FBI Lexington Resident Agency on three separate occasions in October 2018, December 2018, and again in January 2019. What? Okay, this is where it gets kind of interesting. So, this is a guy who has made himself known to the FBI on previous occasions. And I believe that that's probably why this is a Marshal Service officer. This is probably the only person in that particular office who hasn't had a lot of contact uh, with Saturday uh, before. And so that's why they're, I believe, having a Marshal Service officer uh, do this because everybody else is in some way already involved with this character. Uh, goes on. Why, why is this guy going to the FBI so much uh, in the 2018? In those meetings, Saturday reported that he was a victim of cyber intrusion. Saturday provided the FBI with telephone number and email addresses as his contact information. The incidents were closed due to no evidence of cyber intrusion on Saturday's devices. End quote. So in other words, Denim Dad is paranoid. He constantly thinks, I'm getting hacked, I'm getting hacked. And what does he do? He takes his stuff to the FBI and like, look, I'm being hacked. And the FBI keeps telling him, you're not being hacked, all right? Stop it. I mean, it's just, just, again, they're not sending their best, right? These are some nutty, nutty individuals. Um, I mean, he's just, uh, I would guess, this is someone who's, who's paranoid. Um, so, yeah. I do wonder which came first. Was the identification based in part on the prior contact with the FBI? And it's certainly very convenient for the deputy marshal because, of course, they were able to verify the identification by simply interviewing the two agents who had worked Saturday's case in 2018. Probably just a walk down the hall of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, assuming that these agents, you know, uh, were still at Louisville. Um, they were also able to get data from Saturday's cellular provider, showing that he was on the Capitol on January 6th, and also his call logs, which included calls to the Watergate Hotel, and bizarrely, 
a call to the FBI tip line at 1-800-CALL-FBI on January 7th, 2021. So, yeah, this guy just loves calling the FBI. And I don't, I don't know what he was doing calling the tip line on January 7th, 2021. It gets better. It gets better. This is a guy, again, you know, I don't know, like, who was involved in this identification, but I think I think they got this guy all on their own. I don't know that they needed any help to identify this guy because he's so well-known at the Louisville Field Office. Like, once once the photo's there, it's like, yeah, that's that's Barry Saturday. There's Barry. God, who's, who's hacking your phone today, Barry? Anyway, Barry Saturday claimed that someone had made a cyber intrusion on his iPhone. Uh, in And so that he got... This is after January 6th. He was interviewed by agents in Lexington, Kentucky on July 16th, 2021. So again, he's coming, oh, I'm, I'm getting hacked. After the attack in the Capitol, after January 6th, he's still going to the FBI and being like, look, I'm, I'm getting hacked. I'm just so nuts. Um, uh, yeah, but this time, for some reason, Barry Saturday doesn't, doesn't give them his phone. He's like, I'm being hacked. Oh, but... You can't see my phone. Why can't we see your phone this time, Barry? Wonder what could be on it. So, yeah. He's, he's going to the FBI with these hacking complaints. Um, they're probably just, you know, figments of his imagination. Uh, you would think that contacting the FBI would be the last thing that he would be doing, having gone to the attack and committed assault. Nonetheless, that's what Barry Saturday is doing. So, yeah, I'm believe that the government could have just made this one on his own. Saturday has this habit of making himself a nuisance. was well known to the FBI in Louisville. Um, and again, makes sense that he'll be handled by a marshal's deputy, uh, a deputy marshal of the marshal service. He had so much contact with the FBI that probably all the agents at Louisville wanted someone who had no prior contact with Saturday to lead this investigation. There are no dates anywhere in the statement of fact to give a verification of when and how Saturday was identified, but I think it's perfectly plausible that Saturday said or did something at that interview on July 17th, 2021, that gave himself away. No, you can't see my phone. Um, made him take a look at, you know, closer look at Barry Saturday. I mean, they may have even done this backwards, right? I mean, using an FBI photo uh, of Saturday to place him at the Capitol. But, yeah. Like a lot of these defendants, seem I don't want to stigmatize mental health, but seems like this is someone who needs some help. Alright, so now I'll get to the last defendant that I'm going to talk about. Again, lots reviewed uh, a lot of these different cases, but these are highlights of selected people of interest. You know, Saturday's case is just interesting because, you know, this is someone who uh, made himself very well known to the FBI in a way that perhaps aided his identification. This next case is also, he's not a VIP or anything like that, um, but an interesting case, as we'll see, just because of what happens and the, the interesting family dynamics. Um, this is one where actually I feel a little bit of sympathy uh, for, for the father in the case, as we will see. This is Benjamin Cohen, hashtag know you behave. The agent in this case is a task force officer in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and again, Good job of doing this. Very little personally identifying information. Probably the way to do it. The first tip that they get uh, regarding Cohen is uh, on or about July 26, 2022. 
Cohen, uh, the FBI received a tip identifying Bolo AFO 379 as Benjamin Cohen of Westport, Connecticut. Following this tip, the FBI compared a Connecticut Department of Motor Vehicles DMV photo of Cohen to footage taken at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, which revealed that Cohen's DMV photo matched an individual depicted in a variety of photos and videos wearing the same clothing as Bolo AFO 379. Further review of government records revealed Cohen's last known address as Westport, Connecticut. So this is interesting because we do have actually a concrete date on the tip. And this tip is a lot later than a lot of the tips. So um, I don't think this is languishing on anyone's desk. Took about a year uh, for them to arrest him. Uh, why is he, what, he's, he's an AFO because, of course, he took part in the tunnel fight. Um, and, you know, this is apparently, yeah, I'm just, I'm actually kind of happy to see this. You know, this is progress. Uh, in, in the sense that, you know, they got tip summer of, next, well, of last year and they, they arrested him uh, this summer. Um, in a world where there are people who are getting identified on January 10th, who all, you know, this is, that's progress, right? So, what happens next? Well, on December 13th, 2022, the FBI interviewed one of Cohen's former co-workers who was able to confirm the identity of Cohen from four pictures. On January 30th, 2022, the FBI interviewed Cohen, along with his mother and father, at their home in Westport, Connecticut. And Cohen's father, sorry, that would be 2023. Um, Cohen's father claimed that Cohen traveled with his mother to attend the Stop the Steal rally at the Ellipse, and that he had learned that Cohen had also marched you know, with her to the Capitol thereafter. Cohen's mother claimed that she lost track of Cohen at that, sometime at the point during the march, and this is when Cohen appears to have joined the attack on the on the uh, on the Capitol. Uh, apparently, there's no point at which Cohen told his mom, "Okay, mom, bye. I'm off to go assault the police now." Um, but Cohen was right there, according to the statement of facts, uh, right there at the barriers when Thomas Webster launches this assault against police, and in the fracas uh, after that. Cohen is visible in the video shoving and striking police officers with his hands. Um, at 2.48 p.m. on the 6th, he makes his way to the Lower West Terrace Tunnel, where he takes part in the fight, uh, part of the heave-ho attack. And at some point around 4 p.m., he appears to have been tear-gassed, but this apparently doesn't deter him from entering the Capitol, where he's photographed later. Cohen lives in a quiet suburban street in Westport. Uh, he's age 21, so he's possibly a college student, and is registered to vote at his parents' address. His father, Robert Cohen, is a registered Democrat. Ben Cohen is a Republican, and his mother doesn't appear to be registered at that address. According to Zillow, the family home appears to be valued at approximately $1.2 million. Uh, his father is a Cooper Union graduate, and he's an architect, whose website says that his work is intended to celebrate, quote, the human spirit with artistic and scientific design solutions that are durable and lucid, end quote. So it's, it's hard to tell what the family dynamics are here, right? But presumably he's not proud of his boy, um, you know, and the FBI comes to him and first thing he does, you know, he's like, yep, he did it. He went there, you know, and I... I be a fly on the wall, right? You know, how long had he been saying, see, you know, 
You should never taken him to the Capitol. What were you thinking? And what were you thinking of holding police? I mean, um, you know, his dad did the right thing. Uh, in essence, you know, there's so many, I mean, the paternal instinct, the, the, the uh, yeah, the parental instinct, you know, one might even be forgiven for defending your kid in this circumstance. He doesn't. He's like, you're, go you're going to go through this process, um, and uh, I'm going to identify you. So uh, thank you to Robert Cohen uh, for doing the right thing, even when it's not easy. Okay. Well, and thank you so much for listening uh, so long. Um, don't know what's going to happen with the Trump cases, of course. There's going to be more motions fly, flying through the air. There's going to be more revelations. Remember, all those people who offered derogatory information about Trump in the committee hearings, they're going to be testifying for the prosecution in Georgia and in D.C., uh, and we're going to get more stuff coming out in the slam dunk case of the uh, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, even though personally, for my money, the federal and the Fulton County cases uh, for January 6th are the ones to watch. In any event, thank you so much for listening. I'm Scott Coon.